liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Recording late at night, and you know what that means. Clint Russell has taken another deep dive into ESG. <laughs> I can't stop myself. Uh, I want to thank Jeff, actually, a listener of mine who put together these notes for me, and I took me about, a, I don't know, two months or something to finally really read through everything to understand uh, the full picture of this stuff. But man, is it sinister. And man, does it all stem from the World Economic Forum. So... <sighs> You know, I, I swear to you, I go into this trying not to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm literally just trying to figure out where does this stuff derive itself? You know, where does it arrive into the modern business parlance? Why why is sustainability becoming this catch catch-all phrase that every businessman, every CEO that I hear on TV is talking about? And it's easy enough to just go, well, you know, the green agenda became popular uh, after Al Gore and blah, blah, blah. And because it's popular, people want it. And this is why it's all, no, I'm sorry. It's not that popular, especially in the investor world. You know, these people are looking to make money. So anytime you see something that's this pervasive and it doesn't really align itself with profit, you have to question why. And if there is profit to be had in it, why is there profit to be had in not seeking the best thing for your business and the best thing for your bottom line? So that's what I've set out to do. And thank you again to Jeff for helping me connect some of these dots. I think you guys are going to find this tremendously interesting. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor for tonight's show, and that is The Daily Job Hunt. If you are interested in becoming a better job applicant. All you have to do is go to careerhackers.com, cost you $0.0 and in an inflationary environment, that's a very affordable price because it's nothing. Go to careerhackers.com, sign up for the daily job hunt. It'll give you some tips, tricks on how to stand apart, how to separate yourself, how to be what either an employer is looking for or be the best version of yourself to launch into the entrepreneurial path. Either way, your first stop is careerhackers.com. Let's get into ESG deep dive number two. So for those that aren't familiar, the SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, was established in 2011. And that was really where the accounting manipulation, where you started to have new metrics by which businesses had to quantify their incomes, their expenses, it like, Truly, it was a mechanism in which their accounting became a mechanism for implementation of the Green New Deal and carbon reduction, things of that nature. Uh, in 2020, though, so right in the teeth of year one of lockdowns, the IIRC, which is International Integrated Reporting Council, which was established in 2011, as well as SASB, which was uh, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which is also established in 2011, they merge in November of 2020 when everyone's freaked out about the lockdowns. Then, oh, they become the Value Reporting Foundation at that point. 
Then there's also this other entity called CDSB, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, which was established by the World Economic Forum in 2007. Note that that is the earliest implementation of any of these organizations. So the, the Value Reporting Foundation merges itself one year later, November 2021, which is not that long ago, merges with CDSB into the International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB. Then you also have the IFRS Foundation. I'm going to give you some uh, backstory to prove all this out, but this is how we got here. So it's important to understand the chronology of all this. Let's start with a little backdrop on SASB. So they say uh, SASB standards connect businesses, uh, business and investors on the financial impacts of sustainability. As James Lindsay has made it popular to say sustainability is communism. <laughs> it really is. Here we go. If you're looking to invest in a company, financial data only shows part of the picture. In fact, how a business manages sustainability issues, including environmental, social, and governance issues, is vital because sustainability issues are business issues. And when managed well, a company's financial performance will show it. Investors can best decide which companies to invest in only once they have the right data at their disposal. Let's pause it there for a second. I love that they, you know, they, they show just a classic uh, skyscraper where it's like, that's obviously the bad building because the hipster-esque, slightly more modern architecture is obviously the, the green building. Uh, it's so, on its face, it's so propagandistic. And then also simultaneously, they pair with that, uh, you know, a flat line for the stock price or the value of the square building, whereas the stupid shaped building is, you know, the skyrocketing upwards arrow. Ridiculous. SASB standards provide a common language for companies and investors to talk about sustainability issues. Available in 70... Now, note that they're talking about creating a common language, <clears throat> which is fascinating because, you know, much of this is about like Marxist dialectic and the evolution of language. And they are, they are truly creating a new language in the business world. So I, want, I wanted to really point that out to you guys. Like that is meaningful. And the fact that so many of these people are Malthusian Marxist believers, borderline communists, if not outright communists. Uh, I mean, Klaus Schwab has a, a bust of Vladimir Lenin behind him in many interviews. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, that they're, they're really doing it. Seven industries, they identify the subset of issues that impact the financial performance of each of those industries. When you look at the big picture, it's clear that standards matter because improved transparency leads to improved performance. See, see the up arrow, just crushing it. When companies use SASB standards to disclose consistent and reliable sustainability data, investors can compare companies and direct capital to the top performers. Using SASB standards, companies can benchmark their performance against peers and work to improve their performance to increase shareholder value creating a race to the top and ultimately making the capital markets a powerful lever of change for a more sustainable world. Oh, and now you got all the, the skyscrapers with a park around them. You guys have truly changed everything for us. I'm going to read this to you real quick. They say SASB standards uh, guide the disclosure of financial material sustainability information by companies to their investors available for 77 industries. That's basically every industry. 
The standards identify the subset of environmental, social, and governance issues most relevant to financial performance in each industry. SASB standards are maintained under the auspices of the Value Reporting Foundation, which I referenced earlier, a global nonprofit organization that offers a comprehensive suite of resources designed to help businesses and investors develop a shared understanding of enterprise value, how it is created, preserved, or eroded. The resources, including integrated thinking principles, the integrated reporting framework, and SASB standards can be used alone or in combination depending on business needs. The Value Reporting Foundation Board of Directors oversees the strategy, finances, and operations of the entire organization and appoints the members of the SASB Standards Board. The SASB Standards Board is an independent board that is accountable for due process outcomes and ratification of the SASB standards. Uh, learn more about our governance structure here. Let's do that. Before I show you the board, let's uh, get a quick quote from our homie, Klaus Schwab, founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. He said, quote, creating long-term value requires both a focus on financial and sustainability performance. That is a false assertion. Sustainability performance is not about the sustainability of the company or profit profitability or anything like that. It's about sustainability of the planet. At least that's how they phrase it. So in fact, creating long-term value requires both a focus on financial and sustainability performance is false. It requires that you focus on financial sustainability, not financial and sustainability. This, uh, continuing with the quote, this means we need tools for measuring sustainability performance just as we have for financial performance. No, we don't need that. Uh, the, continuing on, the World Economic Forum and its private sector coalition, there you go, private, public, made a contribution on this front, proposing a core set of stakeholder capitalism metrics. We are pleased that this, uh, their stakeholder, not shareholder, got to constantly pay attention to the words because if you read it too fast, you just brush over it. We are pleased that this effort will provide a basis for the technical work of the ISSB. We look forward to continuing our partnership with the IFRS Foundation in support of the ISSB during its establishment and as it delivers on its historical mandate. M mandate by who, you fuck? Who mandated this? I didn't want it. I didn't want it at all. So let's take a look at the Value Reporting Foundation. They say that it has a structure that includes a governing board of directors, the Value Reporting Foundation board, and two independent boards that govern the content of the framework and SASB standards. So here we go. Let's see how diverse this board is because obviously it's going to be incredibly diverse because that's what they're all about. That's what the governance thing is all about. That's what the uh, social is all about, social justice. We got a white guy, a white guy, a white woman, a white woman, a white woman, a white guy. I think a white guy, a white guy, a white woman, a white guy, a white woman, a white woman, a white guy, an Indian guy. There's your diversity. An Asian woman. There's your diversity. White woman, white guy, white woman, white woman, white guy, <laughs> white guy, white guy, white guy, white guy, white guy, Asian guy, Asian lady, white girl, white guy, white guy, white guy, white. Oh, I think he's Asian or uh, Indian as well. Indian male. Uh, white guy, black guy, there you go. Uh, some lady, I don't know. White guy, white guy, Asian guy. All right, so what's that? 80 plus percent white? These are the people that are dictating sustainability. These are the people propagating and pushing ESG. These are the people that we're supposed to believe, deeply believe in the injustices of racism historically. And yet the people dictating these policies that say we have to have representation. And keep in mind, this is a global organization, and yet they still can only muster four minorities out of 40. Come on. They're just, <clears throat> they're so hypocritical, man. They're just so, they're so full of shit 
on its face. I just wanted you to see that board. And you know, I hate identity politics. And you know, I, I don't care what the makeup of the board is. I'm just saying, if you're going to stake your claim, your moral superiority to everybody else, so much so that you get to dictate what every business on earth does. And the premise of which is that you're going to make sure that we undo these racial injustices and yet 80% white. Come on, man. Scumbags, liars. So I was thinking to myself, like, this can't have really derived from the World Economic Forum, right? But if you look, the very first organization that went into those mergers was the CDSB, which is set up at the World Economic Forum in the absence of climate-related disclosure standard setters. So they look at this thing, they look at the global economy, and they say to themselves, we need to have some mechanism to implement this. And since the private market won't do it, we'll come up with it. I mean, you got to keep in mind, like these people work hand in hand with governments all over the world. So they create the CDSB in 2007. That's only three, three or so years after Kofi Annan and the UN you know, make this kind of their global mandate. Three years later, the World Economic Forum is the first entity to come up with this. And by the way, I'm reading straight from the CDSB, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board website, which is now merged into that other stuff that I told you about earlier. 2010, the CDSB launches Framework for Reporting Climate Information. So that's only six years after Kofi Annan. In 2012, CDSB publishes a consistency report to lead the path for harmonization of reporting standards and standards setting organizations. 2013, CDSB is referenced as a method of compliance in the UK Companies Act. 2015, <clears throat> CDSB framework expands to include environmental information and natural capital, whatever that is, biodiversity and land use, water and social issues. Okay, so environment. Uh, 2016, CDSB is referenced in EU non-financial reporting guidance. So that's when they first get into the government, it seems like, or like really into it. CDSB wins the Sustainability Champion of the Year and Finance for the Future Awards. 2017, the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures releases recommendations that echo CDSB's framework. So there you go. Now other people are getting in the, in the mix. 2018, CDSB establishes the CCFD Knowledge Hub, achieving 40,000 unique visitors in the first year. CDSB framework updated to align with TCFD uh, recommendations. Apologies for all these acronyms. This is how these corporate fuckers speak. So I'm just relaying it to you how I read it. Uh, 2019, TCFD e-learning courses added to the Knowledge Hub and the website achieve 80,000 unique visitors. Ooh, so special. I have more fucking unique visitors in the first year of my podcast, you scumbags. And lastly, 2020, big up arrow once again, propagandizing you to believe all of this is great. TCFD, Knowledge Hub, unique visitors jump to 195,000 in a single year. I shit you not, like, I probably have that many unique, unique listeners in a year. Uh, 2021, CDSB launches biodiversity and water guidances. Uh, TC, TFCD, Knowledge Hub on course to achieve more unique visitors than previous year. The ISSB has announced it's COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, da, 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 CDSB, oh, with the CDSB set to consolidate into the ISSB, along with leading standard setters, CDSB develops a climate prototype for the ISSB, building from existing standards to support the start of the ISSB. 2022, 13,000 course completions from 137 territories on the TCFD e-learning hub. I'm sorry for all the corporate boilerplate talk. I'm just giving you the chronology of how we got here. And keep in mind, all of this began under... Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum in 2007. 
That's only 15 years ago. And now they have their claws into every fucking business on the planet. Every big business. Obviously, small businesses are still doing their own thing uh, to some extent. But wow. Talk about a cancerous-like growth. Truly cancerous. And I'm telling you, the the shortages that we're experiencing, I, I personally believe, like after I've learned more about this, I really believe that the lockdowns themselves could not have happened without the popularization of ESG. I don't think anyone's made that point yet, but I really believe that as this technocratic, top-down, totalitarian management of humanity became more popularized amongst the political elite and the corporate elite, the, the whole concept of a lockdown became more palatable because to them, there is no sacrifice that they aren't willing to take with your life to implement their goals. Whatever the, whatever the collateral damage, whatever the consequences, they're good with it. I really think that's what happened is that this, this is a, a sick ideology that enables some of the most wealthy and powerful people on the planet to implement truly dangerous top-down policies that all of us become victims of. And I think that the lockdowns were the first time that we saw it. However, keep in mind, it's not the only time that we've seen it. The shortages that we're experiencing are not just because of the lockdowns and the supply shortages that have come from supply chain breakdowns. They are also predicated on ESG being embraced, not just by businesses, but also by the governments of the world where oil and gas production stopped being a thing. Like they, they stopped all, like all the new drilling uh, offshore was just stopped yesterday by the Biden administration. As he's saying that they're they're we, We've never stopped any drilling. No, 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 no. They stopped the, uh, the big pipeline uh, that went to Canada. Like first day he was in office. This, all of this is man. It's a man-made crisis top to bottom, man-made crisis. And then you have countries like Germany, which have decided that they're going to get away from oil and gas production entirely. And so what, what happens after that? Well, then they shift to wind and solar. So what happens after that? Well, they realize that wind and solar doesn't produce enough energy. Well, too late because they've also shut down their nuclear power plants, shut down their nuclear power plants entirely. So now they're reliant on Russia to get their oil and gas because they have no nuclear option. The wind and solar doesn't provide them nearly the energy that they need. And Bob's your uncle. You're now Putin's bitch. <laughs> Good job. Um, but that's not dissimilar to what's happened to us in the United States. I mean, even though we don't get a tremendous amount of our oil and gas from Russia, because we lowered our production and we still do import and oil is a global commodity, obviously if prices increase in the UK or in the EU, in Europe, it, the, you know, the cost of, of oil itself globally traded, it's going to increase the price to us as well. So in a weird way, like we, we end up paying more for our oil and gas because of the stupid policies of Europe. But we're also making stupid policies. So like, I'm not, I'm not saying we're the victims here. I'm just saying this is very, it's multi-tiered. Like there's many layers to this thing where every government of the Western world and many other countries are making these same 
horrific, horrendous decisions to rapidly attempt to get away from oil and gas while simultaneously attempting to get away from nuclear power, fully embracing wind and solar, which are incredibly inefficient, that we struggle terribly to store the energy that comes from them because it requires batteries, which by the way, batteries require all sorts of rare earth minerals, cobalt and all sorts of things that a bunch of African kids have to fucking dig out of the ground. So there's your social justice, right? Sorry, I get pissed sometimes. It's all man-made and we are suffering at the hands of people that don't know what the fuck they're doing. And they have truly utopic visions that are amounting to a dystopia for the rest of us. That's truly exactly what's happening. So here's the issue. Because it has, it has infiltrated its way, this sick ESG mentality has infiltrated its way into the accounting practices, which are now being used by rating agencies to, to decide your credit worthiness, essentially. It's an entirely new layer of credit scoring for big businesses. It'll eventually be applied to us as citizens as well if we don't stop it. But for now, it's just to the big businesses. As I've said many times, this has been a backdoor to social credit scores, but it's just corporate credit scores at this point. So the issue is, this is so deeply rooted at this point, even though it's only been around, like really only began to be implemented for the past 15 years, not a long time. It's still that pervasive and it's involved in the the decision-making when it comes to every CEO of every major company in the world, they have to consider this stuff because if they don't, the uh, the accountability, this SASB, the Accountability Standards Board, they will basically be breaking their rules, these concocted bullshit rules that they've just derived out of nothingness, out of Klaus Schwab's fucking asshole. If you don't abide by them, well, then BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, the three guys I bring up all the time, will not invest in you. And if they won't invest in you, you can't really compete. So boom, boom, boom. There you go. That's it. That's the deep dive. I hope it gives you more information on how we got here and why it's such a deep-rooted problem and why it must be fought in any way possible. Uh, my buddy who gave me some of these notes, he was theorizing that perhaps we could come up with a blockchain uh, with you know basically a completely separate economy and get away from these pressures as much as I like the idea and perhaps in a very long time horizon that that could be a potential future economic model. My personal vantage point on that is that one, we don't have enough time. The global economy is going to collapse before then. So I guess maybe we do have enough time because we're just going to have to build, build back better truly. Um, but also because of their relationship to central banks and the fact that the you know the vast vast majority of the global economy functions off of fiat we can't really compete we really can't i mean we can we can do you know agorist type stuff where we trade amongst each other we can divest ourselves of fiat currency and migrate over to bitcoin which by the way much better time to migrate to bitcoin now than it was you know 6 months ago or certainly a year ago uh, now that it's under 20k again but man, daunting task, truly a daunting task. And there's no easy answers here. 
you know, as I've, I've mentioned before, Vivek Ramaswamy is creating Strive Capital Management, and they, they are hoping to attempt to compete head-to-head with ESG, and God willing, he doesn't get bought out, and he's a true believer, and he's not conning us because we need a guy like that. Um, I'll, I'll keep you guys posted as I see what he's actually doing with his business, and I'll let you know if I think he's the real deal still because at this point, I very much do believe that. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, there's... There's some options that are coming up from the free market, quote unquote, right now. But as I've said many times, because these guys, these upstarts have to compete with the Fed-backed, ESG-backed, World Economic Forum-backed, Davos-backed, BlackRock-backed, State Street-backed, Vanguard-backed. Like, <laughs> that's an uphill battle, man. Like you're, you are dealing with some really powerful entities that have incredibly deep pockets. Oh, and they also have the power of the state behind them to enforce all of this insanity. And we're supposed to outcompete that? <laughs> Good luck, man. It's tough. It's really tough. Sorry I'm laughing, but it's just like, damn, dude, that's daunting. You know, that's a, that's a daunting task to take on the most powerful entities on the planet, all of them at once. And that's what we're facing. So this is why I believe it's vitally important that we focus on letting people know that this is happening. Share this right now. Send it to your family. Let them know that like this is this is what's going on. Like when you hear sustainability in the media, it's communism. When you hear Joe Biden talk about Putin and inflation, the inflation is a product of ESG which has been implemented by big business as well as Joe Biden himself as well as Basically, every Western nation and many others across the planet, they have all decided to migrate away from fossil fuels, even though we didn't have the technology to sustain life on the planet in the interim. Good, good fucking idea, right? You're going to get away from oil and gas because carbon is going to kill us all. And yet you don't have the technology to give us the same energy that we need to stay functioning, to sustain the life that exists on the planet today, AKA you listening to this right now, you are expendable to these people. I am expendable to these people. This is why I'm so fired up about this topic. This is why it's so important to wrap your head around. These people are Malthusians. They believe that the planet is overpopulated. It's a fucking fact. Okay. Like, I'm sorry. I know I sound crazy. It's a fact, though. They believe that the planet is overpopulated. They believe that carbon is ultimately going to create anthropogenic, aka man-made global warming that will throw the, the global climate into such disarray that the planet will heat up so much that billions of people are going to die. So from, from their vantage point, you got to put yourself in their shoes. They're saying to themselves, well, it doesn't matter what we do to these people that live on the planet today. Because they're going to die anyways, unless we change things very rapidly. So once you put yourself in their shoes, you understand the rationale, right? You can say to yourself, okay, I don't agree, but I get the logic. They're wrong, but I understand what they're doing. So that's what I wanted to get across to you guys tonight. I've got a few other topics I'd like to cover, so let's get into that right now. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Expat Money Show. My buddy, Mikhail Thorpe, has been on the show. I'm sure you guys all watched that one. Brilliant guy, traveled the world 20 years, did all of the groundwork necessary to figure out what it takes to 
uproot your life and leave the country to flee the tyranny you are experiencing wherever you are on earth, wherever you're listening. If you feel that your government has become overly totalitarian, which I wouldn't blame you after the past two years, and you want to explore other options, save yourself a tremendous amount of time and heartache by going to expat money show, either on YouTube or to go to expat money show.com, excuse me, expatmoney.com so that you can check out his work. It is invaluable. Uh, his show is free, but there's obviously some paid services that will help you if you get serious about this stuff, but that's your starting point. Go to expatmoney.com. Let's get back into the show. So now you've seen the Genesis block, if you will. Let's see how we can extrapolate this into some current events, some modern news, so you can understand where the implementation is actually being seen and why it's so fucking evil. Got an article from The Intercept where they're talking about Core Civic, which is a private prison conglomerate. And I'm going to read from the article now. They say the private prison corporation's stock price and access to bond markets has been battered by pressure over its role in profiting from immigrant detention and for providing financial support to Donald Trump's presidency. The company is currently facing a class action lawsuit brought by immigration detainees claiming that they were forced to work with little or no pay. The racial equity audit was a conscious effort by CoreCivic not only to mend its poor public image, but also to harness public interest in racial, racial justice to bring the company back into the good graces of Wall Street investors. The contents of CoreCivic's audit pointed to mostly superficial contributions to diversity and equity. Uh, there we go. The report, conducted by Moore and Van Allen, a North Carolina-based law firm, offered some room for improvement, but largely applauded the private prison giant for its genuine commitment to diversity principles, including, here we go, by raising cultural awareness with a mural of Martin Luther King Jr. at one of its immigration and customs enforcement detention centers in Arizona. <laughs> the report also praised Core Civic for its philanthropy and business practices that have benefited communities of color. Sure, they lock all your people up, but they also have some uh, some programs for, I don't know, employment or childcare or something. Once they have your dads in prison, they'll take care of your kid. Very cool. And, you know, they put a mural on the wall of him. Okay, how bad can they be? This is all such a con, such a scam. It's in an accompanying report on the company's diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's DEI, CoreCivic touted its ranks of non-white prison guards. Oh, the slave masters are black, so it's totally cool. Diversity on its board of directors and diverse ranks of wardens, as well as its partnership with a black-led pro-business trade group. Well, thank you so much. Keep locking up black people, but as long as black people are also the ones locking up the black people. Those supposed strides elicited eye rolls amongst its critics. That's me. Quote, they put children's murals on the, wall, on the wall while incarcerating infants. That doesn't mean they have positive impacts for children, end quote, said Bob LeDeBall, a longtime watchdog of the private prison industry, referencing the company's Taylor, Texas-based ICE detention center. Yeah, these people, <laughs> they're responsible for locking up illegal immigrants. Cool. Uh, this is hollow at best and probably a deeply cynical attempt to whitewash a company that has a horrible reputation, a horrible track record of abuse and neglect of people who've been sentenced in their facilities, added Libel. The company has faced multiple allegations of severe understaffing and safety issues, as well as unsanitary conditions in many facilities. The reality is CoreCivic's entire existence is offensive to black and brown communities. They're trying to create some version, right, 
some image that they aren't 1000% harmful, said Biana Tylik, the founder of Worth Rises, an advocacy group that focuses on the privatization of the criminal justice system. As you're aware, I have no problem with private prisons. I don't think that state-run prisons are any better. Uh, people that that only rail against the private prison industrial complex completely miss the point when it comes to the fact that if it's a publicly ran prison, you still have police unions or you know guard unions that that lobby for harsher criminal charges for nonviolent drug offenders, things of that nature. It's been a problem forever. So the, all of these problems exist in the public uh, realm as well. It's just dumb. It's just dumb. I hate it. But that's not the point. Point is, there's ESG for you. And this is what I've been talking about repeatedly with ESG being a black box of which you can put whatever your political ideology in. Uh, and on the other end of it, you can come out with answers that make you feel good, but don't amount to actually accomplishing anything with your stated goals. And it allows for uh, Northrop Grumman, for instance, or Boeing or any of these like military industrial complex uh, contractors to have high ESG ratings, whereas Tesla has a terrible ESG rating. Disney, very high because they indoctrinate your children with, you know, LGBTQI, QPPP plus, LMNOP uh, messaging and characters and things like that. They're good. They're good. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. None of it matters. I think that's really the point that I wanted to get across is like, whatever you're being told about ESG and any defense that you see of it is just utterly misinformed or an outright lie. That's what it is. Because it is fucking not getting done what they claim to be getting done. Never is and never shall. So let's check out, you know, that video I showed you earlier, straight from some of the organizations that are fully implementing uh, DEI and ESG. Well, check this out. It's going to blow your mind. So that video I showed you earlier has that very corporate, very, I don't even know how to describe it, just weird garbage propaganda. It just looks like propaganda. It looks like it came like straight out of the USSR, but like if USSR had like, I don't know, better computer programming skills. Here we go. You're one of 1 billion people who are using a new technology to track. Oh, this new technology is known as the ledger. Sorry, I got to back it up. It says uh, who are using a new technology to track their learning and income. Okay, so this is applied to kids in school. It's known as the ledger. Welcome to the year 2026, where learning is earning. <laughs> so Your ledger account tracks everything you've ever learned in units called EduBlocks. Each EduBlock represents one hour of learning in a particular subject. Anyone can grant EduBlocks to anyone else. You can earn EduBlocks from a formal institution like a school or your workplace. But you can also earn them from individuals or informal groups like a community center or an app. The ledger makes it possible for you to get credit for learning that happens anywhere, even when you're just doing the things you love. Your profile displays all the EduBlocks you've earned. Employers can use this information to offer you a job or a gig that matches your skills. 
We'll keep track of all the income your skills generate and use that data to provide feedback on your courses. When choosing a subject to study in the future, you may wish to choose the subject whose students are earning the most income. You can also use the ledger to find investors in your education. Since the ledger is already tracking income earned from each EduBlock, you can offer investors a percentage of your future income in exchange for free learning hours. Yo, indentured servitude, dope. Uh, so yeah, you can see why it has some sales potential, like why it actually, it sounds cool. But if you actually think about what it means, what it means is that from childhood, they're going to have every aspect of your curriculum curriculum put into in like any extra extracurricular things that you do, anything that you're doing, you get these edge blocks, which now label you as XYZ skills. And all of this information is stored on some sort of blockchain, the edge of block. And do you think that that's going to be strictly used by like voluntarily? Like you're just going to be like, oh, okay, I want to hire, I want to apply for this job. So uh, here's my information. Or would that information be tremendously valuable to the government and to big businesses? Yeah, it would be. So do you think they're going to get access to it? Yeah, they will. So say that your your edge of block shows that you're into, I don't know, like uh some sort of some sort of terrorist thing. <laughs> like like what if you check out a book uh by Ted Kaczynski? <laughs> I'm just saying, like this this type of information being on a blockchain that you know it's not gonna be private. It's just flatly not gonna be private. It's not. So do you want to live in that reality? Do you want to live in that reality where all of this information is stored, not with you, not so that you can go and, you know, apply to college. You can like actually fill out an application or go to a, an employer and fill out an application. You just want it to be out there floating around. No, thanks. Our smart contracts make these agreements easy to manage and administer. The ledger is built on blockchain the same technology that powers Bitcoin and other digital currencies. That means every EduBlock that has ever been earned is a permanent part of the growing public record of our collective learning and working. Oh, public record. Well, thanks, EduBlock by Ledger. Yeah, makes me a little nervous, you know? And uh, now let's take you into some real world examples of where Blockchain and edge of block might be a problem. This is from Bloomberg. It says new algorithm can predict crime in U.S. cities a week before it happens. A new computer algorithm can now forecast crime in a big city near you. The algorithm, which was formulated by social scientists at the University of Chicago, hey, social scientists, probably the people that created edge of block, and touts 90% accuracy. Oh, so 10% you arrest the wrong person before they've committed a crime? Very fucking cool. Uh, divide cities into a thousand square foot tiles, according to a study published in Nature Human Behavior. Researchers used historical data on violent crimes and property crime from Chicago to test the model, which detects patterns over time in these tiled areas, tries to predict future events. It performed just as well using data from other big cities, including Atlanta, LA, Philadelphia, the study showed. The new tool contrasts with previous models for prediction, which depict crime as emerging from hotspots that spread to surrounding areas. Such an approach tends to miss the complex social environment of cities, as well as the nuanced relationship between crime and the effect of police enforcement. 
thus leaving room for bias, according to the report. Quote, it is hard to argue that bias isn't there when people sit down and determine which patterns they will look at to predict crime because these patterns by themselves don't mean anything. End quote. Bullshit, they don't mean anything. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if a cop has been working a beat for 15 years, I'm sure he's got a pretty good idea of who we should be looking at. And honestly, because he has the capacity to I don't know, discern some things, he's probably better than your algorithm. Sorry to break it to you. Quote, but now you can ask the algorithm complex questions like, what happens to the rate of violent crime if property crimes go up? Oh my God. Other crime prediction models previously used by law enforcement have been found to erroneously target certain people based on a narrow set of factors. In 2012, the Chicago Police Department, along with academic researchers, implemented the crime and victimization risk model that produced a list of so-called strategic subjects or potential victims and perpetrators of shooting incidents determined by factors such as age and arrest history. Almost done. The model assigned a score that determined how urgently people on the list needed to be monitored. So basically putting people on parole, even if they haven't committed a crime. Very cool. And a higher score meant they were more likely to be perceived as either a potential victim or perpetrator of a gun crime. But after a lengthy legal battle, Chicago Sun-Times investigation revealed in 2017 that nearly half of the people identified by the model as potential perpetrators had never been charged with illegal gun possession while 13% had never been charged with a serious offense. In contrast, the tool designed by Chattopadhyaya and his colleagues uses hundreds of thousands of sociological patterns to figure out the risk of crime at a particular time and space. So it's not applied to the people, which makes it great. It's just applied to a, a square in Chicago. The study, event-level prediction of urban Urban crime reveals signature of enforcement bias in U.S. cities was supported by uh, by the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, and the Neubauer Collegium for Culture and Society. There you go. So this is this is your future. And I know I'm I'm taking a couple steps ahead and you may go, oh, you're fear mongering or oh, you're conspiracy theorying or oh, you're, you know, doomsaying. I'm not doomsaying. I'm just pointing out like that's where this stuff can go. Like it's not necessarily inevitably going there. In fact, I pray that we don't go there. But if I weren't going to point it out and say, hey, there's a real risk here, like a real, real risk that if we don't stop this techno technocracy that's being rolled out and ESG being a, now a big aspect of like the social scientist uh, justification for the blockchainization of totalitarianism and technocracy like that's what this is this is it's all it's all coming from this belief in the capacity via technology to manage seven billion people and as as a person who believes in individualism and privacy and uh i don't know human liberty makes me very nervous makes me very 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 very, very nervous <laughs> it really really does so uh i hope that you guys can see the dots I'm connecting, they're not so disparate that like I'm just making shit up. Like this, this really has a potential of entering into kind of a social credit score Chinese model. And it's up to us. It's up to us to inform people of, of where this is headed. Like not just the genesis, which I've now laid out, but also maybe give them a couple ideas on the steps that are likely to come in the coming years. Because it gon' get dark. So I've given you a lot of dark stuff, right? I like to give you a little interlude of levity, even though it's not 
all that optimistic either. But uh, this past week, Jordan Peterson was suspended from Twitter. I mean, potentially banned unless he's willing to delete this tweet. And uh, what he did was he was questioning the, uh, I guess, I don't know, the the morality of Ellen Page. Excuse me. Um, the other one, the new one. I, I don't know. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, and he goes on this 15-minute tirade on his YouTube channel. And I just wanted to show you a little bit of it. It's worth watching the whole thing for sure. Uh, I just love JVP. I really do. This guy's a fucking savage. Uh, this is this is why he's known, in fact, is because he he discussed how allowing this precedent of everybody having to, you know, by law, use someone's preferred pronouns, that if it were to allow, be allowed to persist, that it would evolve into, uh, you know, a sensorial nightmare, hellscape. And... I think we're there. So let's see what he has to say. I'm just going to play you the last minute of it. And unconscionable fad, primarily entangling, as such things so often do, the youthful and female. Isn't that a concern? Intersectionalists? Not when push comes to shove or ideology to scalpel. Is that not a true moral hazard? And I'm not taking down that tweet or acknowledging that my tweet violated the Twitter rules. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. Twitter's a rat hole in the final analysis, and I have probably contributed to that while trying to use, understand, and master that horrible, toxic platform. No doubt I owe some apologies for that, and I'm trying to learn, but it's a relief in some real sense to be banned, and I regard it under the present conditions as a badge of honor. I love that guy. Um, so yeah, he he was he was told he has to delete it, or else he can't come back. And he's saying, "I would rather die <laughs> than delete that tweet." Uh, and he's just questioning pride. He's questioning the he's he, you know his religious backdrop. He's saying pride becomes comes before the fall, and pride is not anything to uh, espouse or you know hold up high. And uh, and he goes through in a very meticulous fashion where he lays out why he believes this, this is a danger and also why he believes the Twitter censorship apparatus is such, uh, once again, a black box. You know, they when if you've been suspended from Twitter, you'd know this, but which I have, uh, they they send you an email and in it they say you've been suspended for violating Twitter's guidelines. And in that they list <clears throat> like five different things that you could have done wrong and they don't tell you which. Very cool. Um, so they say you violated the terms of service and it could be hateful speech or going after a protected class or blah, 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 or threatening violence. It could be these whole litany of things. They don't tell you which it is. So he asks appropriately, what, what did I violate? Because I'm reading through the five or six things that I could potentially be. And I'm, I've concluded I didn't violate any of those. You're not telling me which I violated. So I can't even make a defense based off of the accusation, because I don't know what the accusation is. It's totally true. And this has been a huge problem. It actually reminds me of the problems that come from terms of service agreements, where it's like, you know, it's so easy to click. I think that's the same reason that, that people have oftentimes just played with the censor, or played along with the censorship game, in that it's just it's just easier to, to just click, okay, I'll delete the tweet. And 
a high enough profile person like this that actually damages their business model by putting out a 15 minute YouTube that's been viewed by millions of people where he just eviscerates them for their absurd policies. There's value in that. And you know, that hurts companies. And when it hurts a company, they have to, they have to consider what they're doing. Unfortunately, because the opening to the show, you understand why companies like Twitter are doing what they're doing. And it's predicated on ESG because BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard are all very significant shareholders in Twitter stock. And they will divest if you don't implement censorship because it allegedly protects minorities, which is all nonsensical. But this is why it, it requires so much research and understanding and processing for myself or any of my listeners to really like wrap their heads around why so much of our civilization just seems to be in disarray. It's very complicated. I mean, you've just seen it. I, I've been talking for 40 minutes or whatever it's been, and you could see how, how deep this rabbit hole goes. It's like, it's not one thing. It's, I mean, ESG is a huge aspect of it, but ESG le leads into the club of Rome back in the fifties and, um, or the sixties rather. And, and that was like the, one of the original foundational members, members or, or speakers at the world economic forum in the first few years of its inception, where they, again, they bring up Malthus and it's like, it's wild, man. This, I mean, this stuff, I feel like I could just read about it for the rest of my life to like really wrap my head around it. I'm, I feel like I've been doing that for the past year or so, where I'm just really trying to figure out what this stuff's all about. So I hope that by listening and, and following along with what I'm doing, you can actually stay up to date without you know, burning your whole life away figuring this stuff out because it's very complex. And to give you an idea of the slippery slope that Jordan Peterson believes that we're on with honoring people's pronouns, no matter how absurd and ridiculous it can get, and we've seen it can get pretty absurd. There's people that think that they're birds and you have to refer to them as like chirp, chirpy. Uh, this is a, a really horrifying example of that. We got transabled people are cutting off their limbs to become disabled by choice. June 11, 2022 from Pulptastic. People with disabilities are often limited by their disability. It can affect their day-to-day -day life, the activities they are able to do, and how others treat them. People in wheelchairs cannot go where people who cannot walk do. Blind people cannot see what we see, and deaf people cannot hear what we hear. However, there's a subset of people in this world who become disabled by choice. Transabled people, or transabled for short, have an overwhelming desire to become disabled themselves. An increasing number of these people are injuring themselves in an attempt to become disabled, as they claim to feel like imposters in their own bodies. They are driven by a need to feel what it is like to be paralyzed, blind, or missing a limb. To them, their able-bodied life is extremely dissatisfying, and they would rather be disabled. One transabled man, known as Jason, spent months researching ways to remove his arm and learning first aid to prevent himself from bleeding to death. He even practiced amputation on animal parts he bought from a butcher. Jason went on to deliberately drop a concrete block on his leg in an attempt to injure himself so badly an amputation would be needed. Doctors saved the leg, leaving Jason with a limp, but it's not the disability he wanted. Alexandre, Alexandre Baril, a Quebec, uh, Quebec academic who lectures on transability, says of the condition, the person could want to become deafblind, amputee, paraplegic. It's a really, really strong desire. The condition can be life-threatening as many who identify as transabled arrange accidents in their efforts to achieve their desired body type and often nearly kill themselves. 
Many transable people identify strongly with transgender people, transgender people as they feel they're not in the right body and believe transability should be treated similar to transgenderism. Clive Baldwin, a Canadian academic, suggests that amputation may help transabled people in the way in the same way cosmetic surgery helps transgender people achieve their ideal bodies. But sadly, the transabled community has been met with open hostility from parts of the disabled community who feel transableism steals valuable resources from disabled people and even romanticizes disability. Well, isn't that very similar to how many lesbian and gay people feel about the trans community? Uh, this leads to secrecy amongst uh, many transabled people with one 78-year-old man who wishes to be, remain anonymous, revealing he'd lived with the secret for over 60 years and never told his wife. There's a wide range of reasons as to why transabled people do what they do. Some people feel as though they were born into the wrong body and that their able-bodied life should never have happened. For some, it is a sexual fetish, and for others, it may be because they feel more comfortable in a wheelchair, even though there is nothing wrong with their legs. Here's a, my little commentary. And perhaps it's because they're fucking batshit crazy. <laughs> Continuing on. People who have not experienced being disabled often have a hard time understanding why transabled people do what they do. It is very easy to condemn it as attention-seeking or attempting to escape from reality, but that does not help anybody understand why this phenomenon exists. It is important to understand that transabled people are just as real as other people with disabilities and may need the help of professionals. I agree with that. Doctors who first hear a patient confess of being transabled are often confused or uncertain how to deal with it. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, they may dismiss the complaints as a symptom of psychosis. It is, but that is not always the case. Transabled people have been known to cause themselves harm in order to become disabled. It is not unheard of for them to intentionally damage their eyes, break their legs, or try to become paralyzed. These people are often pushed further into their disability by doctors who tell them there is nothing wrong with them. This can only make the problem worse and ha has led to many transabled people becoming suicidal over time. The best course of action is to help these people without judging them. Yeah, well, helping, unfortunately... In many situations now, in this modern, accept everybody, whatever they say about themselves is absolute fact and truth, is that now you have people that are being injured because it is a fad and it is a passing moment or perhaps a mental illness or just a, a period of life of uncertainty. And if you help them, as this article says, you should help the transabled well, how do you put their arm back on? How do you give them their vision back? You can extrapolate these, this topic and, and my answers to it to the other area, which I'm not allowed to talk about without getting nuked. And all of these issues apply equally in that realm. And I'm very, very concerned about it. And I know that it's overstated by conservatives. And I know that they're they're blowing, you know, a mountain out of a molehill type stuff, and there's not that many people being affected. Well, I'll agree, I'll grant you, it's not so many people that it's like as concerning as ESG or all the money printing or a global economy falling apart or World War III. It's not. It's not on that level. But let's be honest. There is a very significant danger that if it isn't called in some fashion, if we don't speak out against it in some fashion, if we allow the mob mentality and the suppression and censorship of this topic itself to persist, it's going to probably get pretty out of hand. And it's my belief that it has gotten out of hand because for the past decade, largely predicated on education coming from very woke teachers that came through Marxist education mills, AKA elite universities. Uh, and 
and paired with the censorship that prevents many people from being willing to speak out and paired with ESG, which can jeopardize your career if you speak out because we now have HR and CEOs and you know all sorts of uh, restrictions on your private opinions because you put them on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and you can lose your job. We've seen it thousands of times. Thousands of people have lost their jobs because they said unwoke stuff. And I believe that that leads to a society where we're not speaking out against some of this stuff, which is, is hurting some kids and in this situation, hurting some adults. And I think that it's, it's immoral. It's immoral that we can't, I mean, first off, it's principally immoral because it's calling of speech. It's chilling of speech. Like it's making us all afraid to talk about this stuff this is why I started Liberty Lockdown is because I want to fucking unlock my liberty. I want to talk about this stuff, but we need to, we need to. So I'm going to keep doing it. And as I said, all of the transgender topic, the transable topic, all this nonsense, uh, it's not the most important thing in the world. I think personal opinion, the most important thing in the world right now, other than our economy, um, the most existential risk that we're facing is the Ukraine and Russia war, which by all accounts, if you're paying any attention at all, is a proxy war between the United States and Russia. So we got an article from WSWS.org says NATO prepares for war fighting against nuclear armed peer competitors. At the conclusion of this week's NATO summit in Madrid, Spain, the members of NATO, including most European states, as well as the United States and Canada, adopted a strategy document outlining plans to militarize the European continent, massively escalate the war with Russia and prepare for war with China. Whoa. Document pledges to deliver the full range of forces needed for high intensity intensity multi-domain war fighting against nuclear armed peer competitors and then they show a snippet and it says in the highlighted portion including for high intensity multi-domain war fighting against nuclear armed peer competitors so they're not making it up this is what they're actually talking about and a sea change from the last strategy document first published in 2010 the new nato strategy document proclaims that quote the euro-atlantic area is not at peace end quote all but declaring that the alliance is at war which it is not <laughs> i mean Last I checked, last I checked, Ukraine is not in NATO. So why the fuck are they talking like that? Continuing on, this is despite the fact that none of the members of the NATO alliance have declared any war within the Euro-Atlantic area. Strategic environment, the Euro-Atlantic area is not at peace. That's a quote straight from their document. So you know it's really what they're saying. The strategic framework document openly adopts the language of power politics, better known by its German name, Machtpolitik. I'm sure I should have said that with more anger to sound like a German. It references the word interest seven times, declaring that both China and Russia challenge the alliance's interests. Oh, well, shouldn't they? Because they aren't you. Don't we have competing interests? Interests? Why, why, why even point that out? Uh, the previous NATO strategic framework published in 2010 used the word interest only once in pledging to enhance the political consultation and practical cooperation with Russia in areas of shared interests. While the 2010 document named Russia a partner, this year's strategic framework proclaims Russia a threat and China a challenge. The new NATO strategy document explicitly justifies these des designations by declaring that these countries challenge our interests. It declares that PRC, the People's Republic of China, seeks to control key technological and industrial sectors, critical infrastructure, and strategic material and supply chains. It uses its economic leverage to create strategic dependencies and enhance its influence. Well, yeah, they are. I don't disagree. However, it's probably because we're constantly fucking with them. 
mean, it's like this is a two-way street here, folks. You can't treat people like they're second-class citizens and then expect them to be like, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be cool with you. We're gonna do everything you want. No, I mean, we treat them as if they're uh, an enemy combatant, so they respond in kind. I, I, and when they do it in return, then we escalate, and this is how wars start. Maybe we should stop. I don't know. Just an idea. In order to preserve their interests, the Allies pledged to significantly strengthen deterrence and defense. Critically, the document asserts that the series of actions that triggered the war in Ukraine have been a success, declaring NATO's enlargement has been a historic success. The Kremlin justified its in invasion of Ukraine by claiming that Ukraine's effort to join NATO and the deployment of nuclear weapons on Russia's border constituted a threat to its national security. Hey, probably accurate. The NATO document doubles down on the expansion of the military alliance, declaring we, we reaffirm our open-door policy. Our door remains open to all European democracies that share the values of our alliance, it adds. Decisions on membership are taken by NATO allies, and no third party has a say in this process. War now raging in Ukraine is the largest in Europe since the Second World War and has already killed tens of thousands of Ukrainians and Russians. In describing the expansion of NATO as having been a success, the alliance effectively declares that these deaths and many more to come are acceptable costs for protecting the interests of the alliance's members. In response to this challenge to the alliance, uh, alliance's interests, the NATO members have pledged a program of militar militarization that will affect the, all aspects of society. It declares in an environment of strategic competition, we will enhance our global awareness and reach to deter, defend, contest, and deny across all domains and directions in line with our 360-degree approach. The document further states, as long as nuclear weapons exist, NATO will remain a nuclear alliance. And the alliance pledges to ensure a substantial and persistent presence on land and sea and in the air, including through strengthened integrated air and missile defense. The document adds that NATO's nuclear deterrence posture also relies on the United States nuclear weapons forward deployed in Europe and the con contributions of allies concerned. The achievements of the goals set out in the document require a massive expansion of the troops, munitions, and supply chains necessary for war fighting. Quote, we will deter and defend forward with robust in-place, multi-domain, combat-ready forces, enhanced command and control arrangements, pre-positioned ammunition and equipment, and improved capacity and infrastructure to rapidly reinforce any ally, including a, at short or no notice, end quote. The NATO strategy document does not acknowledge or recognize any competing priorities for military resources. The words hunger, poverty, and unemployment do not appear, nor is there any reference to the COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed tens of millions. Well, I, 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 this is some leftist writer, I'm sure. The comments of U.S. President Joe Biden were fully consistent with the tone of this document. At the post-summit press conference, Biden boasted, we provided Ukraine with nearly $7 billion in security assistance since I took office. And the next few days, we intend to announce more than $800 million more, including a new advanced Western air defense system for Ukraine, more artillery and ammunition, counter-battery radars, additional ammunition for the HIMARS multiple launch rocket system we've already given Ukraine, and more HIMARS coming from other countries as well. He added that the total commitment of the U.S. allies, including nearly 140,000 anti-tank systems, more than 600 tanks, nearly 500 artillery systems, more than 600,000 rounds of artillery ammunition, as well as advanced multiple launch rocket systems, anti-ship systems, and air defense systems. Yet, when asked about the cost to the American public of the war, Biden did not indicate that this was even taken into consideration. Well, thank you. And I'm going to stop there because if I read any more, I'll get too pissed. Um, but yeah, I think that we are, for real... For real, for real, taking leaps, not steps, leaps towards a hot conflict, World War III hot conflict, because it's not just going to be the U.S. versus Russia. It's not going to be that. It is going to be Axis versus allies all over again. Like if it, if it escalates to that point, and I pray to God it doesn't, but let's be honest, if it does, it's going to be Europe and us versus China, Syria, 
Russia. I could, I'm sure I could come up with probably Venezuela, you know, a handful of other countries. Like it would be fucking hell on earth. So no thanks. Not to mention like five of the potential combatants have nukes. So someone's going to use one. And I just don't think we survive it. I really don't. Uh, speaking of, I just got uh, Scott Horton's new book, Hot as the Sun, Time to End uh, Nuclear Weapons. I don't know the subtitle. I, I just got it. Um, so I'm going to be reading that this week. I Obviously, I'll invite him to come on, and I'm sure he, he'd be willing uh, so we can really hash this out because I have been very concerned about nuclear proliferation and what I believe is the inevitable use of nuclear weapons sometime in my life um, if we don't work towards denuclearization. So I cannot wait to read his book. It consists of a bunch of interviews with experts in the field, and I'm sure it's going to be brilliant as always. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Let's end with some positivity. Why don't we? Huh? Uh, one of the only decent American politicians left here uh, spoke out very passionately against red flag laws today. And his name is Rand Paul. Let's see what he has to say. The adversarial process is you get a lawyer. The other side gets a lawyer. And you know what? We go one step further in our, in our system. Government has a lawyer. You have a lawyer. But you know what? The presumption is that you are innocent. We start out with the presumption of the individual being innocent, and we add the hurdle to the government, the burden of proof that they must prove your guilt. And in the Constitution, we say for a criminal offense, we must prove the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet we're talking about taking away fundamental constitutional rights with only hearing the evidence from one side, and the standard would be a preponderance of the evidence. What's a preponderance? It's 50-50 and it's 51-49. We think the person might be a threat. But we've only heard from their spouse and we didn't hear from them. We only heard from their estranged spouse or we only heard from the person that's angry with them at work or we only heard from the person from the opposite political persuasion that, that read their writings on the internet. We can see, we can all see the mischief for this. Uh, <laughs> That's putting it very mildly. Uh, earlier in his speech, this is like a 25-minute rant that he goes on, and it's pretty awesome. Uh, but in it, he, he references the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial as, as an example of this. And I think it's it's a reasonable example. Like, obviously, Amber Heard, had she had the ability, or if Johnny was, you know, armed, I don't even know if he was. But, uh, you know, if she, if she could have reported him and got him stripped of his weapons, I'm pretty sure she would have. And after you have a trial where you actually get to hear both sides cases well that's a little bit different you know if he's actually proven to be this terrible threat or you know you can get a uh what's it called i can't remember what it's called uh, anyways the law where you can't go near someone restraining order there we go um there would be some value there uh but beyond that you know just she makes an accusation he gets his weapons taken away and then he has to prove that he's not crazy or prove that he's not a threat to her. Well, that's that's not exactly due process. Now, is it? So I wish in the middle of this, in the middle of these tragedies, that we would think of what we could do. New York's already got these red flag laws. New York's got lots of them. New York's got lots of gun control. And yet the shooting happened in Buffalo. But the kid in Buffalo had made a threat. It's a felony to, to make a threat to kill others. He could have been prosecuted. 
So I fear even with this law, if we don't pay attention to the laws we already have, if we don't persist and persevere in prosecuting these kids that show this danger, we already have. It's not that we just had the signals they might. They are committing crimes. Why don't we prosecute them? Why don't we use the laws on the book? But I would say that there is a big risk today to encouraging across the country jurisprudence where you don't have legal representation, where the adjudication is based on evidence only from one side, and then you finally get your day in court and you get your lawyer, and everybody's petrified of reversing a decision where you've been named a threat. So I think we want the same thing in the end. Let me just pause there for a second. Don't really like his case being made there that, oh, you know, this it's the classic conservative trope of like, we already have the laws, we just have to enforce them. Like, we already have the laws for, you know, stopping immigration, we just have to enforce them. Well, at some point, you have to acknowledge the government doesn't fucking enforce these laws. And if they do enforce them, they enforce them in a partisan fashion. Perfect example are those shootings. Like, sure, the kid in Buffalo may have made threats online. And obviously, he went on to become a threat. Well, maybe, obviously, assuming he actually was the one that did it. And he wasn't a plant. Uh, <laughs> not going down that rabbit hole. But point being, it's like, I don't really want the government stripping people of their guns, even if you're making threats. Like, I honestly, like, I, I think that unless you have committed a crime, which I guess he's saying that there's laws on the books that if you make a threat online, that that's a crime. I, I don't know if that's true or not, to be honest. I think that there's arguments to be had that that would fall under free speech, but maybe not depending on the nature of it, if it's like actionable and all sorts of other stuff. But regardless, you have to have a fucking trial, man. Like you have to have a trial. You can't just say, uh, I think so. Like if you think so and you have evidence of such and you can prove it in court, bring his ass into court if you want to try and strip him of his weapons. But you can't just say, okay, well, this guy said some crazy stuff, so he shouldn't be allowed to own guns. Because you know what that means? Everyone's saying anything that's anti-government is going to be labeled crazy and stripped of their guts. Is that a fair extrapolation to make? I sure think so. Let's hear the last 30 seconds. My hope, though, is that people will be very careful because I would not want to see a day where we change and reverse justice in our system such that people are guilty until proven innocent. The bedrock of American jurisprudence is innocent until proven guilty. The burden's on the government. And until we can make red flag laws consistent with innocent until proven guilty, we should reject them. Yeah, I don't really like that either. Until we can make red flag logs that are consistent with innocent until proven guilty. I don't think you're going to be able to, okay? I don't think you're going to be able to. Because we have a right to defend ourselves. We do. Right? Don't we? Do we? I think we do. I'm not sure. But we should. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I have that right. And I don't care what you put on a piece of paper that says otherwise. If you come and you try and strip me of my weapons, you're not going to get them. And I think that that's a, a, an appropriate stance that we need at least 25% of this country to feel the same way. Because if we don't feel that way and mean it seriously and sincerely, they're going to come get them. They're going to come take them. And they're not going to take them in some like mass rollout where they come and you know go door to door just taking them all. No, 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 no. They're going to use all of the stuff that I detailed earlier when it comes to uh, surveillance capacity and blockchain technology to track our beliefs and uh, you know what education we've received and you know, 
pair that with all of our purchasing history online, which is now undoubtedly possessed by the government in databases and NSA. Yeah, you add all of that up, you have a, a real capacity to attempt to prevent crime before it happens and strip rights under the pretense of we must protect people. And I think that that's, that's really my biggest concern with what I have seen in the ethos of America in transition over, over my lifetime is that we went from operating from a foundational belief in liberty to a foundational belief in safety. And as I believe it was Ben Franklin said, you can't have both. If you want liberty, you're going to have to accept the fact that there's going to be some lack of safety. And ultimately, if you prioritize safety, you will end up with neither. And I think that's a good way to end it. If you'd like to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. I will be having on Amari Sachet, the creator of BCH, Bitcoin Cash. Um, Bitcoin Cash blew up this past week. He's moved on, so that won't matter. But I, I figured it'd be a great opportunity to talk to him about Roger Ver and what the fuck's going on because some craziness happening, uh, as well as uh, Tobias Ruck, Ruck. And, uh, and then a few days after that, I will be having on Josie, the redheaded libertarian, and she is awesome. We're going to break down the constitutional stuff. Just so you guys know, Judge Andrew Napolitano is out of town on vacation. God bless him. I hope he's enjoying it. Love that guy. Um, so we will get him back on as soon as he is back in town. But I want him to have the time of his life and unwind. Good Lord, don't we all need that from time to time? I need one soon. Anyways, last but not least, toplobster.com. If you want to pick up any of the Liberty Lockdown merch, love you guys. I'm going to bed. We're out. Well, you know, I can't let you go just yet. Well, actually, I can. If you want to leave, you're more than welcome to. This is going to be a debate, kind of. Obviously, I just moved to Florida, so I, I was pretty ill-equipped for this one. But um, Hector Roos is a buddy of mine. He is a member of the Mises Caucus Florida, and he has decided to run for governor of the state of Florida under the LP against the vaunted Ron DeSantis. And I have personally taken the, the position that I think that we probably ought not, uh, if nothing less or if nothing more than just to demonstrate that, you know, for the vast, vast majority of people that were anti-lockdown, like the most important liberty topic of our era and he is perceived, as we discussed with Hector, Hector disagrees with this assertion, but this is the vast majority of people's opinion, is that he was the most outspoken governor against lockdowns when it mattered most. And for that reason alone, I don't think it's prudent for us to both tarnish our appearance to people, but also, uh, you know, spend any capital on a race of this nature. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, that being said, I'm friends with Hector. And, uh, you know, I wish him well with if he continues with the campaign and uh, we'll see what you think. And if you aren't interested in Florida politics, if you don't care about Ron DeSantis, if you don't care about the LP, just skip the second half of this episode. No hard feelings. Love you anyways. Enjoy. And uh, yeah, we'll see what you think.
It's going to be interesting. Welcome, everybody, to a live stream edition of Liberty Lockdown. I am joined by my friend, who I'm going to debate now, <laughs> Hector Roos. Uh, he has decided to throw his hat in the ring as a candidate for governor of the great state of Florida, my hometown, as you can see. Uh, Hector, welcome in. Thanks, Clint. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we got to start it off with uh, a super chat from Todd Lobster saying, I want to start this off by saying Hector is wrong. Uh, as you know, there are many uh, dissenters amongst the libertarian or liberty movement more broadly. Uh, I think I'm probably going to take as unpopular a position as you are. Uh, we're very divided on this. And I think that's healthy, honestly. Like, I think it's good to to have some difference of opinion from time to time. And this is a, this is a tough one for everybody. Um, would you like to start with making your case or do you want me to just give like a one minute synopsis as to why I think we shouldn't? You go for it. Your show. Okay. Well, uh, needless to say, I fled California to Florida, uh, not even almost a year ago, not even, uh, largely if not entirely because of what Ron DeSantis did as governor of Florida uh, over the past two and a half years or whenever the lockdowns or craziness started. Um, I just, I personally believe that the, the state of Florida would be in dire condition if, you know, Andrew Gillum had won. Uh, and I think that essentially it's a waste of our energy and resources to be taking on one of the governors that when Liberty was most threatened in my lifetime, to a large extent, not perfect, but to a large extent, he stood up when very few were willing, and he did it in a highly populated, uh, elderly state. You know, lots of lots of elderly people uh, retire in Florida. There was tremendous political pressure for him to acquiesce to the demands of the COVID regime, and he was probably the most vocal and also the most, you know, persecuted by the media for doing so. I think that that earns him my respect. So that's my vantage point on it. Uh, go ahead and give me your your counter. Sure, Clint. Uh, to everybody listening, I'm, I'm going to say something that, that maybe you haven't heard from, uh, heard about, and that is that Ron DeSantis actually had one of the worst records in the country as a governor during the COVID uh, lockdown time, time period. Uh, that is not easy to say. Uh, I, I can tell you that uh, the reality comes down to it is that you're being sold a, a basically a story, another narrative by the media to prop up a candidate who will run for president in 2024. We've seen it with Trump. We've seen it with other candidates. They pick and choose who are the winners and losers. And even if, they, if they're in opposition to them by highlighting their record, whatever it is, uh, they, they can basically control who, it, who it, everybody should be paying attention to. So Ron DeSantis has been, you know, for a long time now, uh, he has been considered this baby Trump figure uh, the, or the next of, you know, in line. Uh, and the reality that everything that we've been hearing about uh, Ron DeSantis from the media, and frankly, you know, the, the narrative that we hear from people who are opposed to me running uh, is frankly, he is the, the second coming, right? Uh, which, which is really the, uh, but based on a narrative that's actually false, because the media, you know, the same the same media that told us that that Trump was a Russian agent is the same media that we're supposed to trust that that uh, on anything really, uh, including on Ron DeSantis. So let's set the record straight. So I I believe uh, Ron DeSantis's record is actually quite unforgivable and an abject failure, even on a conservative measure. You know, in the midst, this is a guy who actually uh, held the state. And what do I mean by worst record in, on COVID? 
he actually maintained a, uh, a state of emergency in Florida for 475 days, 475 days uh, of, of lockdowns and restrictions. And some, some people felt it in Florida more than others. So he actually created two different states. Uh, he created a, a state in Florida where you didn't have a lot of restrictions at all. And others were basically, if you were run by Democrats, he gave he just gave you over to Democrats to for mask mandates uh, over a year. Some in, in a lot of cases, ma- vaccine mandates, uh, and that's that's the point. If you, for example, if you were a if you were a member of the in the industry of the healthcare space, you were required to have a vaccine. If you were a patient in the public healthcare space, you were required to have a vaccine. So the, that's well, wasn't that's, that wasn't that federal law though. You're talking about a public health administrations that were actually governed by the state of Florida. They followed the same rules of, of the state of Florida. They were uh, they're paid by the budget of the state of Florida and their taxpayers. So whether they were whatever federal guidelines that there were, you know, supposedly that's what people like about the sense that he resisted the federal guidelines. But then we're saying, on the other hand, well, here, 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 he just let he's let the feds have whatever they wanted with the Democratic allies that were promoting this narrative that we've we since have understood is to be at least exaggerated in terms of of its uh, the threat to society. Now, with, with that could said, I, it was could, sure. could I interject one question? Um, to me, the you know the the libertarian answer is oftentimes you know states' rights and then even lower level rights. So if you are in a blue city, which unfortunately I am in Miami, uh, as much as I hated the fact that there was mask mandates and things like that in in certain businesses. Uh, I tend to lean towards, well, should we should we actually want a governor who's more like Newsom, but on the liberty side where he's saying, I don't care what anybody thinks in any of these cities. Uh, I want them all to do as I say. It seems as if your critique is almost that he wasn't more uh, dictator like in defending the the anti lockdown people. That is a great point. A lot of people have uh, can point out that uh, maybe I'm saying that he wasn't strong enough. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that the local there is no authorization for local governments, school boards, uh, hospital districts to to behave the way they did and strip people of their fundamental rights. Uh, they accept through the emergency order that Ron DeSantis himself kept in place for 475 days. They had zero authority outside of that emergency order that Ron DeSantis put in place for 475 days, which did not end until June 26th of 20, uh, what is it, 2021. Uh, 2022, so I would imagine. Well, well oh, I'm no, sure we the effects it? of it now, right? Right. No, they no, no. You're, you're saying so he, he ended it in June 2021. Is that right? Right. Correct. Okay. At the why, end why, of June. Why did he keep it for that long? I, I am curious, uh, you know, given, do you know? I, you may not even well, know. I, you know, I, I live for politics, right? This is something I do for a living. So I can, I have my theories that are, are pretty, you know, educated guesses here. Uh, the reality is the legislature actually has, has been, has totally for, uh, abandoned its duties in terms of establishing policy and leadership in the state, in the state government. And they, they've actually been basically out to lunch or out fishing since, uh, since the, the, the unfortunate Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, the one the, the, the big uh, school shooting down in Broward County that happened in 20, 2017. They've been out to lunch. They've been out to lunch on these issues, and they, they've been just hoping that, you know, kicking the can down the road, hoping nobody pays attention. Here comes COVID. They're still like saying, okay, governor, you do whatever you want. You know, and that and, and generally that's basically what, it, what it's been to. Uh, uh, 
the only reason why the, the emergency itself ended was because most states were already, even the blue states were already reopened. So what mm -hmm. was what was the what was the assumption at that point? I mean, even the even the CDC was saying, hey, you know, the, having the doc, you know, having this reversing on on vaccines and, and mask mandates, right? At that time, that's really what was happening at the time. So what was the justification for an emergency for all for this power that the, uh, the governor would ha continue to carry without checks and balances? Uh, well, I mean, it, 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 the, the the narrative is that uh, DeSantis only locked down for thirty days or so. Um, is that is it your belief that because he he maintained that declaration of emergency that that's not really the case that he allowed right. for lockdowns even if he wasn't the one instructing it? Well, I mean, certainly he was giving permission to it. So that's that's the that's the rub. Okay. So what we're seeing is this false counter uh, or culture war uh, about oh masks in school and and whether you know whether curfews or no noise, especially the the win the big one about uh, school masking in schools, right? And whether we should be mandated or not. If it, if he didn't want it to be mandated, all he had to do was end the emergency declaration, and he refused to do so for another hundred days. I mean, beyond after after the, all the complaints and whatnot of over hundred days, and even uh, because school goes into session in, in in at the end of August, so that's well over hundred days from June. That's that's like that's almost like another. Actually, it was the end of the school year, frankly, mm -hmm. in June. So uh, after the end of the school year. So um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that a lot of this that we're talking about really is a media narrative that he's also perpetuated and participated in. But that's not the only I, reason why anybody should run and confront Ron DeSantis. Uh, before, the, the we, before, we, yeah. before we get into your, your reasons, I sorry, I keep cutting you off, but I want to just keep it more of a back and forth so I can actually ask questions because otherwise I forget them. Um, so why why is it that the media would be propping up DeSantis? I mean, it. Why would they be painting him as this liberty defender? He's a very exactly. He's a very shrewd candidate. He's a very shrewd politician. He seems to be a sincere threat to them from my vantage point. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like I understood why they would have propped up Trump because they thought of him as a joke. I don't think the left perceives DeSantis to be a joke and that's why they're dragging him. You're making it sound as if they're propping him up to Put, you know, make him a contender in 24 for the presidency. That doesn't that doesn't add up to me. So if you could give a little bit more info on that. No, no problem. That's exactly where I was going to uh, with, with okay. this before you, you interrupted. The, the reality is that they're on, you know, he, they're on his side because he's on their side. So this is a person who who's the, who believes in tax increases in the middle of so COVID. He, so you're he, saying he's, he's a Trojan largest, horse. He's absolutely. Uh, you could definitely say that. Uh in the middle of COVID, he he signed into law the biggest tax increase in Florida history. He it was an, an extra billion dollar tax increase. Florida was only uh, only one of two states that didn't have an internet sales tax. In the middle of all the suffering and people having to go to Amazon and whatever to to get to get uh, their goods, uh, he put a tax on them. He he put absolutely put a tax on them. So the next thing is that well, what else do they agree on? Obviously, gun control, right? This is a guy who's been since 2019. He's been he's had a position in support of red flag laws, which is basically the the uh, essentially, it's a support for gun confiscation, which is the, the you can't that there you don't get any more communist of a position than gun confiscation in in America in American society, you know. So the the reality is that this and of course, what can we what can we say about his um, his defense of free speech and and, and whatnot? You know, they they kind of they kind of like that too because guess what? When the, the whole thing about don't say gay or or things about you can't protest out in the streets, you know. Uh, uh, or you be essentially declared a, a domestic terrorist. I don't know if you remember this. You know who the first people 
first people who were uh, indicted under laws were, were Trump supporters. So I'm like, yeah, the reality check is that he hasn't done anything really that they don't they don't disagree with. Hmm. Well, it's they just, certainly they certainly portray it as such. But uh, I, I do I do disagree with some of your assessment when it comes to the laws he's rolled out. Uh, as far as I know, he has only given lip service to red flag laws. I don't believe they've been implemented, have they? In Florida, we have a very strong red flag law. And the, one of the reasons why I decided to run for office is because I woke up terrified and in, in sweats and couldn't sleep for days, knowing that the national red flag laws that just passed were explicitly based on the red flag laws of the state of Florida that Ron DeSantis refused to support a repeal of. Oh, interesting. So how who who actually or how long have those laws been in place? Because I was not familiar. So 20, 2017, they passed in a in a in a in a rush in the middle of a, a legislative session. Uh, he wasn't governor yet. He would be elected in twenty eighteen. Uh, but you know, he just endorsed the author of that law for for uh, for statewide office. Well, that's that's horrific. That I I will give you that one. That's terrible. Um, I, I do think that the uh, you know saying he's not a you know First Amendment guy. Um, I think that that was more protests in the streets. He wasn't actually banning protests. Is that correct, or am I wrong? Well, it's a restriction of free speech, uh, for, for certainly. Uh, but the application is really, the governor is not the one who applies it eventually. It's these state attorneys, it's police, it's, you know, uh, and the, the fact is, is that there is a lot more reason to protest in big cities than there are in, in, in rural communities these days. So who's going to who's going to really be uh, affected by it? It's going to be people like you and me who live in the metro areas. Oh, sure. No, I mean, that's that's true. I, I'm just saying the it, am I mistaken in that the law for the protests? Because I know, you know, my buddy Magnus Panvidia was very upset about it, too. Um, my understanding that it was just protests for people that were blocking roadways. And, you know, I think that there's there's a fair argument to be had that perhaps that's not something that we should be doing. You know, it, it what, what, certainly jeopardizes people right. and it jeopardizes cars. You've what, seen a lot of people dragged out of their cars and beaten up over the year. Like, I understand why some people would support that, even if they support sure. protesting. So so first, uh, so first is what I was saying before. It's really whoever, the, the people who actually say it's obstruction of traffic, who say all these things, who say this is wrong, are people, the same people who enforce the law. So that that's a oh, clear so, point. So you're of, just you're saying we just can't trust it, them to. It's a, it's well, no, we know the we we know the track history of how civil rights are, are supported right. by by law enforcement and prosecutors in the state of Florida. It's it's just a very negative. We already know what's going to happen when you wep, when you weaponize uh, these kind of laws against uh, against legal uh, political opposition. But on the other side of that, you know, this country is a great country. We are big enough to have, uh, you know, have this discussion, have this debate on open forums. You know, the, when we say take the issue to the streets to protest, that is the only out. That's the only you know method to actually uh, protest and and to even uh, and even to get attention to issues we care about. And all of a sudden, you want to pass laws and and even support laws that would even curtail that or resist it. I mean, that by itself, you know, when we don't have access, especially during the COVID years, when you weren't, you don't have access to your public meetings, uh, when you, you know, when the politicians were as far removed from the people as possible, that is the kind of law that was produced out of that time. And I, well, I find it horrendous. I, I, I mean, I, I obviously, I agree with you. Protest is, is vital. Uh, my only critique of this is that it seems to me that, like, you should absolutely be protesting, and especially during lockdowns, you should be protesting. Uh, or mandates or any of this stuff. But if it comes down to people protesting 
on freeways or protests like surrounding an entire like a hospital or something like even if it was like a anti-vaccine mandate uh movement which i support strongly if there was a protest where people that i agree with were like we're gonna go you know completely surround a hospital so that ambulances can't get in i would say that's wrong that ought to probably be illegal because you are endangering people i feel similarly to people protesting in the middle of roadways and and that's what we saw a lot of and i think that's where that law uh was derived so um i don't know i don't know how i don't know how we see eye to eye on this one very simple you know every thursday i tune in to this podcast to watch you and Judge Andrew Napolitano go, yeah, go at it. And his, his reply <laughs> to you would would be uh, that that the First Amendment is to protect unpopular opinion, and particularly the way the uh, you know it's being protested as well. So you know we're here you know we're here saying that you know protest is important, but then how, then we want to limit it. So which is it? And I'm and well, re- realistically, if you if you trust the judge like I do, I would ne- I would you know basically support uh, you know erring on uh, allowing more opinion and more protest than not. Oh, I, I certainly err on that side. It's just like these are really extreme circumstances where you saw people actually bro- blocking roadways. I mean, we saw it just during the road Roe versus Wade in in California, right. even where you know people are going to be able to get abortions you know from here to eternity. I'm certain. Right. Uh, it's it just it creates a hazard. I mean, it really does. It endangers people. And it also, it, it created all of those instances of, of people being panicked because they had people banging on their windows right. and the, the drives, the, the cars driving through. Uh, it, it just, I don't know, man, that's a tough one for me. Uh, obviously I, I completely right. come down on the side of free speech, but at the same time, right. it's like, if you are endangering people's lives, not with the speech itself, I don't, I'm not saying right. anything that they're saying is necessarily wrong. I don't think it is, but when it comes to endangering people, so. Yeah, it's a, it's it's tough to want to stand up to things when it feel it feels like rough, right? The, the our democratic republic requires uh, a certain amount of ownership from people into the political process. They yeah. really need access to the streets. I mean, we saw what happened in, in just saying Canada with the truckers, right? You know, uh, if you don't have an outcome, an out, you know, where somewhere to actually be able to protest adequately, you're only re- you're you're left with the streets again. Uh, no, and, no, and frankly, I agree. I agree. The streets, I, the streets are necessary. I want to point out. I do want to point out something really important, which is that we we've been seeing a series of laws. I mean, look at the last two years. I mean, the the reality. This came from these speeches. Came from the, the uh, these these laws. Came from this this position of of uh, we want uh, to slowly more and more restrict or create uh, op- uh, enemies or or you know. Uh, to free speech. What does that mean by that? Like the truckers, we saw them, right? They were seizing bank accounts or or, or the GoFundMe's of these of these people. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, they were, at, you know, uh, the ju- the courts were asking, wait, can we find out where this this kind of cryptocurrency is going to? You know, and in in America, of course, we've always had, you know, the whole, you know, we've always had these uh, stories of the FBI following people and taking down the license plate numbers and all that. And we essentially we've we've been supporting a surveillance state in this country. Yeah. And then on top of that, we've been saying that we want to introduce this, this idea of a social credit system that's, you know, certainly uh, Maoist, right, in nature. But we're already there. I mean, what we're saying now is just adding more and more laws to make it more illegal or make it more uh, more restrictive, which simply cause panic to say you don't have any rights. You should stay home. Uh, you should. This is otherwise to curtail free speech. And in the in a time that we live in now, we should never, especially now, we should not err 
on the side of the despots. We should err on the side of the protesters who are who, who feel like they don't have power. You know, yeah. and that's the time we live in. I mean, if, if this was, you know, if, if this was 19, the 1980s, 1990s, and we're, we want to protest, you know, uh, why, uh, you know, a, a, some kind of racist symbol that's being done in, in by a restaurant but that they, they adopted on their menu or something, that's that's a different conversation than, hey, the government is going to take your guns away if you are a political considered a political opponent. That's yeah. where we're at in this country right now. Oh, you know, I don't I don't disagree with you that we are in, you know, dire, dire condition. Um it's just the 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 protesting, you know, where we should air our protesters. Well, I'm saying I'm not airing on the side of the government in any of this. I'm saying there are times where you have protests. I mean, you had violent protests. You had the whole Black Lives Matter thing that kind of got out of hand when it came to the Antifa people that came in. And there was a lot of lot of violence. And obviously violence uh, in protesting is illegal. It doesn't get enforced in many of the blue states. But that's a, another topic. Um, I just... I don't know. We we've kind of beat this one to death, but uh, I do I do have, I guess a a soft spot for saying, well, maybe it's not prudent to make it legal for people to protest in the middle of a fucking freeway, you know? Because that like we saw that a lot. I never thought we would have seen that, but we've seen it a ton. And and you know, I covered the uh, the Ottawa protests, you know, as much as anybody, and sure. and I was very very much on their side. But what made it different is that those people. I had the you know one of the block leaders on, and he was talking about you know we made it made it certain that if there was emergency vehicles, if there was anybody that needed to get through, we let them through. That just simply isn't the case when it comes to some of the protests that we've seen in America over the past two years. And I think that there's a, a fair argument to be had that if you're not going to allow emergency service vehicles through, um, mm -hmm. that's probably that probably ought to be illegal. And and I you know. I, it's tough for me because I'm an anarchist and I'm like, I, I shouldn't say it's illegal. You know, I don't even want to talk legality and all that, but um, I don't know. It's a complicated one. If, you know, it, it, should I be elected governor? I have to worry about the, these issues of legality because I, I basically swear an oath to uphold some of these laws, sure. you know? So the, the react, so when you come down to it, it's, there is a, a, a conversation here about what's appropriate protest when you don't really have a, a public square, the typical public square developed in a, in a large metro area. You know, it seems like the, the, the biggest gathering point that people feel, uh, particularly in South Florida, are highways. And I, I, I see that application of the law and not the application of the law uh, in South Florida. For instance, when protests were happening for Venezuelan elections or, or Fidel Castro dies, you know, uh, obviously the streets and the highways were clogged. Right. You, you couldn't get anywhere. Why? And, and that wasn't this, that was that was a form of protest, but also a form of celebration. You know, where do you divide the line? You know, uh, then on the other side, you, you talk, you know, people. Let's just say a more recent one about the uh, about the you know the uh, Roe versus Wade reversal. You know people were protesting, but how do you cut? You know how do you? It, th this law ends up being like very unenforceable, like re really so unpopular to try and enforce because people really in big numbers want to protest. Now th that is what comes down to it. But when it's small groups of unpopular opinions, that is where it becomes super dangerous. And and yeah, because they can actually those, crush them, and they do. Right. That that's the that's well, the well, thing. Do, do they? I mean, did they? And you said that uh, it was a Trump supporter, Trump supporters that were the first right. people to feel the brunt of that. Oh do yeah, he got details on that because I don't remember that. That was the uh, that was the one where they they basically applied. So this is a, a young guy who was uh, running his truck over a rainbow flag uh, painted uh, intersection somewhere up in the Space Coast, uh, like Daytona, and they the, he was, so he became the first person charged under that law for for basically causing this public nuisance on streets. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was even applied in a very strange way. They ended, they ended up uh, 
you know, giving up the prosecutor ends up giving up deal because, you know, they really do not want to create that. Even they don't want to create that kind of uh, case law against against others. So they gave them a plea, a plea deal, three year probation and a fine, mm-hmm. you know, instead of jail time. But that's but they were they were wanted to throw the book at him with five years in jail and a felony. Okay. So, no, that's, that, yeah, no, I, th- I mean, you're, obviously, you're, I, I don't think it should be enforced with we, like harsh. Right. We already have we already have enough felonies on the books at all. So, I mean, no to even, to even <laughs> I mean, come on, uh, the, you know, the, there is a war, there is a war on basically poor people in this country. That's really what it comes down to. You can't ar- argue. You can't you can't protest. You, you, you have to you know, the limited time that you do have free. I mean, you're going to be at threat of arrest. You know, yeah. so that well, uh, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, uh, please, people, do not protest in the middle of freeways. It's crazy. Like, go protest the government building if you're upset with them. I don't understand why you're doing the, in the freeways. Anyways, uh, I, I want to get back to your your um, you know critique well, I, of his. Oh, yeah. go ahead. No, why I'm running against Ron DeSantis? Yeah, you know, so it's it's not okay. So the simple the simple matter of it is that he, the guy is coasting on this uh, uh, this media narrative. He's just coasting through everything. Uh, through without actually having to do his job as a governor. What do I mean by that? So the, the you know he's he's in a position to actually make sure that legislature does their job, uh, you know vetoes them, uh, vetoes bad bills, and and honestly calls for special sessions when the legislature has uh, abandoned their duties uh, and not filed and and not done the reforms they need to. So in Florida, one of the reforms, biggest reforms that people are screaming over, is on property insurance reform. So this we're in the exact same scenario that happened 20, 20, uh, 2008, 2010, between there where we had obviously rising inflation and rising home uh, home costs and and our property taxes are tied to our home values. So on top of that, we have uh, we have a, a state monopoly in property insurance, which essentially double takes whatever increase of property taxes that are that are directly tied to our property values and doubles it. So it, it's just about proportionally the same value. That's a double whammy. And people are really, really feeling it, feeling this market. And besides, uh, so that is in 2010, obviously, you've heard that the record number of foreclosures in this this country were in multiple counties in Florida. And there's nothing that besides the financial instruments involved, there literally was a a, a big, uh, how do you say, a big problem in regards to how property tax were levied and how property insurance is actually uh, works in Florida that costs even more uh, more pain and suffering to people just trying to, you know, make a living, own their own home, raise a family. And and that was probably one of the drivers. Let, let me make one note. The, the primary reason that the real estate market in Florida was hit so hard during the, the Great Recession was because yes. there is really great building laws here. Like compared to most states, you're able to build. I mean, look at, I don't know if you can see my skyline, but it's fucking incredible. There's just skyscrapers all over the place there's a tremendous amount of units and and i think that that it's tough to then pivot that fact that you guys have some of the more lenient building laws in the country and then say well there was more foreclosures here than anywhere else there's a tremendous amount of ownership of second and third and rental properties um and oftentimes during a recession you're going to see those properties abandoned which is why there was so many foreclosures in florida I, I just wanted to add that as a note as to you know right. why it was so high. Uh, but I, I agree with you, obviously, that the the property tax and what it sounds like is an additional tax if they have a monopoly on the insurance or property insurance here. That's it. That's that's not good. That's not good. And I and I so it, would like it to be repealed. Yeah. In, in other words, we we what we have here is uh, we have a state we have a state uh, property insurance company called Citizens. Uh, it, it basically artificially cr- creates a a bottom in the uh, or 
yeah, bottom for the for the pricing of insurance property insurance. When all of a sudden they decide that you your your risk factor, whatever that is, before a public agency, uh, is too much for them to kick you out, and then you 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 have to go out to the open market, who will charge you three times three or four times more. You know, hmm. you're obliged under law, especially if you want to have a, a mortgage, right? If you have a mortgage, especially, you have to you have to go get an insurance for your property under state law. So uh, that oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you no, no, I knew that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's insurance wrapping. They, the banks are never going to lose, right? Oh wait, They're, wait, wait. The state, the st oh, that's interesting. So the state requires yeah. it to be insured because usually it's the mortgage lender that requires it, right? So that's yes, because we end up doing it twice, right? So that's what. It, so that's the that's the double whammy. Uh, so everything is really about protecting the banks or protecting yeah. the lender, uh, yeah. and and don't forget it was the it at the end of the day the reason one of the biggest culprits for the the two thousand eight or two thousand ten great recession was the subprime mortgages. Right. So in this case, what we're having is people who saved up. We're having a, a similar crisis now because the people who saved up and bought their homes and are, have the, the traditional or conventional mortgage mortgage structures are now being hit by the inflation tax instead of the subprime mortgage. Uh, you know, so what, what's the catalyst? It, it was subprimes being, you know, they're they're shooting up. I'm sorry, their uh, balloon payments. Right. The balloon, uh, they're ballooning mm -hmm. uh, and uh, with their uh, in their in their mortgage structure or mortgage payment structure. And here we're just seeing. You know, double-digit inflation rates in a month from a month-to-month -month basis, and right. who can survive that if your if your uh, if your mortgage rates are first first of all variable, and if your and if your property tax, but certainly your mortgage, uh, your property tax and your property insurance are made variable. Ultimately, though, I also I also see that there's a problem uh, with the way that we we calculate uh, property insurance in this in the state because they uh, they go uh, they go to replacement value. Now, replacement value is based on you know the materials you put into it, uh, and you know it, what would it cost to actually rebuild it at, at you know at, at, as it was right oh, at new. Uh, the, the the issue is that we still have a lot of wood frame homes in or or mixed um, mixed material that's not all concrete. You have wood wood framed uh, roofs and such that still guarantees a lot of property out there. Uh, and one of the reasons why it's so high is because you it's unaffordable to actually replace replace these. Older constructions that don't that really don't have a, a modern uh, the industry doesn't support them anymore, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a that's a problem that we don't uh, that is actually we're locked into it. So in other words, our building code, while it is uh, liberal in some places, like for condo building, for single family homes, it's a disaster because it basically made it made sure that you could not rebuild your home the same way, the exact same replacement. You could so it, it breaks. The property insurance it breaks your your ability to, to recover from a, from a natural disaster. You basically have to upgrade everything. Uh, that that has an, a monstrous impact on pricing, particularly for for uh, for uh, property insurance as a result. I mean, I, I don't want to get too wonky into it, but the, the reality is that the re one of the reasons why I see that Ron Sanders hasn't done his job as governor is that so we had a, a the the state legislature met earlier this year. They did all their legislature legislative business for the year, and they forgot property insurance. You know, so okay, so to fix it, they they promised us a special session where they would just tackle that. Uh, they they called a special session for uh, to fix uh, congressional districts. Uh, then in April, they call the governor made a big announcement that he is calling for a, a special session uh, for property insurance. Finally, we're going to get around to it. Uh, it would be in it, it would be in May, and now we're now we're in July, and we still haven't had it. Mm -hmm. So the reality comes down to is that they all they're not going to have it. You know, hmm. say one thing, do another. The, the legislature and the governor are not interested in, in tackling any more business of the people. They'd rather, uh, for political expedience, uh, rather than help people who are going to lose their homes.
Right. Uh, they're, they're giving it lip service, but they don't want right. to actually pass but, it because but, that'll probably piss off some of their donors, I would imagine. Uh, it's not only that. I mean, because the reality, when you when you bring in a special session, all bets are off. Uh, uh, so people are going to start protesting and asking for their gun rights back. Right. Uh, they're, they're, okay. They're going and they're they're going to be direct filing bills. They're going to make people want to uh, put people to the test right before an August primary, mm -hmm. uh, where the Republicans are even having this debate with amongst themselves. Gotcha. Right. So well, that's well, that's what well, it comes down to. Quick super chat from Ben Heckman says, can we all agree that DeSantis has a disproportionately small head? I honestly haven't ever noticed that, Ben, but I will I will keep an eye out. Um, so I think that there's a probably the like more line along the lines of my my vantage point on this would be the argument that DeSantis is far from perfect. And I agree with you. Many of your critiques are totally valid. Um, what I don't understand is why would we not use the LP as a vehicle to say, Yes, he was good on XYZ, but he was awful on, you know, ABC. And we want to essentially not force his hand, but try and leverage whatever voting block we have here to get him to be better. Simply because if you look at the options, which I think we can all acknowledge that it's highly improbable that an LP person, yourself or anybody else, sure. would become the governor of the state of Florida. Why would we not use this platform as, as an opportunity to try and improve him in the areas that we find to be appalling, given that the alternative is someone like Andrew Gillum, who would have, I mean, you can say what sure. you did about DeSantis and his lockdown policies, but I think we can all agree that it would have been far, far worse under Gillum, or do you not agree with that? I, I think it would have been about the same. Actually, oh, I think, wow, because remember, I was camp I was campaigning for the Joe Jorgensen campaign in Miami in October, November, and still dealing with curfews, still dealing with businesses being shot down still hearing, you know, seeing gym gym owners arrested for keeping their businesses open. You know, we we had a we have a state government and a governor who basically who has decided never recanted that you or someone else, you know, could be essential or non-essential. You know, that that really is the format. My, what I'm trying to well, say wait, in the wait, long hold on, hold on. Did 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 DeSantis say that from the state level, or did he just leave it to the cities and the cities decided who was? No, he, uh, he adopted the he he adopted the FTC was the FTC, the, the federal guidelines, which definitely categorically say declare who is essential and who is not. So he is uh, he essentially agreed with with the administration at that point, which was was Trump, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. And then when he in the next administration, he certainly continued that, right? Mm -hmm. So it, regardless of, of, of the feeling of, of, uh, of really by part of his partisanship, he, he pretty much is pretty consistent that he would he'd agree with he is like I like to say Fauci, but without the needle, you know, <laughs> so. Well, was it so uh, forgive me, but I'm you know, I'm new to Florida. So I like a lot of this is, you know, my perception versus reality. So I'm trying to make sure that I, I am uh, correct in my assessment of these things. But when you say that they were enforcing these things, was it, and I know he was just, he was allowing the federal guidelines in the state of Florida to be implemented. Was he vocally opposed? Like what, why is there such a perception it, it, that, that he was good on lockdowns? I, I know you've said that it's the media. I still don't understand why they would, I, 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 right. I, I know, I know your explanation, but it just seems as if they have really made him out to be the hero. Are, is it your belief that they are, they are grooming him to be the president of the United States and that Absolutely. he is. Oh, you think so? Interesting. Yeah, I, I hundred percent think so. I mean, how can you depart so far from reality if it's only to prop up somebody for for a position down the road? 
I mean, this okay. is they've already done it time and time again every election cycle. They yeah. they pick they make these heroes out of nothing and tell us that they're the they're the second coming. And in some cases, they literally tell us they are the second coming. Hmm. You know, yeah, so no, I, they, I, they I, have I, no credibility. So anything we really tell them, I, I do sympathize with people who who come who come like yourself, right? Who come from a worse place. Don't get me wrong, from a worse place and come to Florida, but then a tr but I I stand here insulted as someone who lived through the entire episode and lived in Florida for years, that you assume that Florida is so great because of a politician and not the people who wouldn't, who just wouldn't put up with the shit. <laughs> well, uh, seriously. So, no, no. I, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I don't know the people here. I've just got here. So um, it, it was my perception. And the reason I came here was because of DeSantis. So that's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, was it local municipality? Like, were there any municipalities that allowed for, uh, you know, throwing off the federal guidelines and, uh, you know, not having mass many, because that's my understanding is that there was many cities or cities yeah. or towns or whatever that were in Florida that didn't but, have lockdowns right. or any of that stuff. We, we have 67 counties and 400 municipalities in the state of Florida. Of the 67, you can, I tell you, probably just 10 of them had the restrictions of the 10 were the most populated ones in the entire state. So, sure. and they represent about 60% of the entire population of Florida. And when they say, oh, they got this county vaccinated up to 90%, that includes, you know, adults, women, children, you know, everybody, you know, and how did they do that? Well, because they basically ma mandated it, even if they didn't call it a mandate, you know, they, they would say, oh, your kid's not allowed back in school next year unless they got this. But but DeSantis didn't do that, right? That was the local school district. So they, they decided to do that under the emergency pretense because 475 okay, so, days. So, okay. Under so you're, you're, you're putting days. Yes. you're putting all local municipality decisions on DeSantis because of the emergency declaration. If you had to, if you read every one of their local local emergency orders, it they always it, starts sure. with they always start with the, the governor has a state of emergency in place. It's not been rescinded. It continues to be. It's vitally important to do so for public health, right. for public public health reasons. So, so he gave them the pretense, and and that is why you're holding him culpable for all of the anti liberty shit that happened over the past two years. I, I, I mean. It's, I mean, hard to, it's hard to argue that that he didn't enable hey. them. So, hey, it's it's like saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, to quote a Star Wars reference, right? Emperor Pal Palpatine is he really the emperor or is he not? Did he not assume the mantle of emperor because of emergency powers in the first place? That's that's how this works. I mean, that's how this works. J JVP Music says, uh, why do you misrepresent what DeSantis did against the lockdowns on Twitter? So obviously, he's he's uh, asking the same right. questions I am. Do There's you, a lot of people feel who repeat repeat oh, the, the, the media narrative because it's, it's very comfortable. It's, it's, we want heroes in, in this when at, in the, at the end of the day, we're, we're basically applauding, you know, what the media says, oh, he's standing up for, for, for us on this issue. But well, when you look in, closely, what did he actually say? In fair, in fairness though, JVP lives in Florida. So he, uh, I think that he probably experienced greater liberty wherever he lives. Uh, if um, I recall J, JVP, I believe uh, I had, I've had conversation on Twitter with people I have to remember if it was him specifically, but for instance, so somebody who's who's actually a libertarian as well, defending defending DeSantis would say, "Oh, in my county, oh, I remember we had the fifty percent, uh, you know, essentially fifty percent capacity rule uh, in my business. So I, I'm down fifty. I can only serve as many people, half of as many people as I'm allowed to under like my occupancy rate." Okay, great. How how you know you had that for six months? Do you know how many businesses went out of business? And you're the lucky one to survive that. You know, that's really the conversation when it comes down to. 
oh, it wasn't so bad for me or it wasn't so bad in this state compared to other states. But at the bigger scheme of things, which direction are we going toward? We're, we're absolutely going more towards statism, more toward, towards authoritarianism. And this was a this was the moment of totalitarianism. And we have a governor who got it wrong. You know, this is the yeah. first governor, one of the first governors to lock down and one of the last governors to lock to, to and probably the last governor to actually take us out of lockdowns, generally speaking, because there were curfews. Uh, there were clo- still closures being recommended in different parts of the state, even though it was applied unevenly. It's it was applied unevenly. Mm-hmm. Well, God, I see. I have a tough I have a tough time with that because it, it is unevenly. It's applied unevenly. But I would like having been in California where it was just applied fucking everywhere. I'm like, that sounds pretty awesome. You know, like if I didn't have to move from San Diego to another state and I could have just moved from San Diego to, you know, I don't know, Orange well, County and, and it would have been right. fine. That would have been great. But the whole the first year, it really didn't matter where you were in California. So I kind of look at that as a positive and I understand why you're painting it as a negative. But it still seems to me that that differentiates him. And I know I know I come from the worst state. So, you know, I'm coming from pure, I'm coming from North Korea and I'm saying, man, uh, Cuba seems really free. Uh, but <laughs> but do you do you understand why a lot of people from the, the harshest lockdown sure. states states go? Why? Why? Why would we paint him as being as bad as like? And I, I got to agree with Top on this to say that it would have been just as bad under Andrew Gillum. Like that seems well, that uh, seems unfair so to me. It doesn't. But and it's a good point. Sometimes Top actually or Danny, that is to say, actually does have things to say, because I, I don't want to refer to him as by his uh, personal you know, proclivities. Uh, but but the re- the reality is, is that. <laughs> Holy shit, that was funny. Good job. The reality is, is that. <laughs> Is that the you know this question about him uh, him locking people down or versus Gillum argument? Is that we he's not the only person we elect the government to run to run the government. We have a legislature, uh, and 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 frankly, the reality thing is is that like I said, for a couple of years now, the legislature's kind of like just done, just tried to try to pass by, uh, like trying to just coast, uh, and then the the emergency happened. They continued to try and coast and just gave things uh, these emergency powers to the governor. Uh, the, how do I say this? Uh, I don't want to get away from their question, but this, this issue that we, that we live in a, uh, in a society in, 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 in a political environment, even in Florida, that is, uh, that has anything to do with Liberty at the end of the day. It, I have a very, I have a big problem with people saying that, that this is the best reflection or even a reflection of, of a pro Liberty, uh, elected official sure. by any measure. So, no, I and, think, and that's I really think what that's... it comes down to. Re- regarding what Top said, and frankly, I forgot what Top said because, or that is Danny, uh, because of his. Um, uh, when it comes down to it, so well, so Gil- Gillum, the, like, why, why yeah, do you, Gillum. why do you, why can you be so certain? Because it, to me, it seems fairly uh, right. evident that it, it would have been worse. Because so if you look Gillum, at New York, Gillum was like a New York type candidate from my vantage point. G- G- Gillum was what DeSantis was. He was a su- a Southern style Dixiecrat, you know, right? So he was. Uh, for as much as George Soros backed, he was there. Most politicians, particularly Democrats in Florida, actually govern more moderates. Why? Because they want a political career moving forward. Like they, it's we have a long tradition in the South of not having New York. St- in fact, having Democrats down here, and this isn't a, an apology for Democrats, but you know the the a a Democrat here in Florida would have said the same thing. Don't New York my Florida, as a as as a DeSantis would have. Because of of the traditions that we have here, 
you know, uh, uh, in Florida. Uh, but you have to understand, so we don't have... Top, top says you didn't have conversations on Twitter. You got ratioed. Uh, Reed says, uh, naturalist capitalist, everybody go support him. Uh, can we all agree that Clint is super hot? Yes, we can. Uh, and then we got JVP one more time. He says, uh, I'm in Broward. I'm the guy whose kid isn't master vax because of DeSantis. Yeah, there you go. Amen so, to that. But uh, what year? But remember, that, that school policy kept stayed there until 2021. In like, what, March? They finally lifted it in 2021. Yeah, so so, that's so, a full year. So was his kid not not forced to vex because he just kept him out for a year, or, or why did it happen? No, you, you basically does DeSantis uh, not deserve any credit for that because it, you know. No, that's, no, that's the see. That's the thing. You you replace you you're making DeSantis out of the hero instead of JVP. JVP is the one who put his kid. Says you say no, you say no, you decline. No, what do well, they do? Pick you not, out? They make you make yeah. you know the worst that they did to the kids was either kick them out. Suspend them or make them go to virtual school instead of coming into coming into in, in person school. So but in Florida, once you, they mandated vaccination for children. Yes, absolutely. Huh. Uh, Matt, yes, they did because uh, ultimately it was we already have mass mandate. I'm sorry, uh, vaccine mandates for kids. They add, just added onto the schedule. That's all. They, that's all they did. Wow, I'm going to have to verify that one. But if it's true, that's horrific. I didn't know that. They did. I mean, that's what well, they would. They would have these nursing programs that just come to the school. I'm in Miami, so this is what happened in Miami. They would come to the school. They uh, they would drop drop come a little earlier. They would go to the little clinic in the school, get their vac vaccine, and go to class. That's it. No, but but they had to. Right. It wasn't just offered. It was they had to. No, no, well, it was. It was there, yeah. It's, that that's the that's that's how it was sold to them. Yes. Well, was it sold to them verbally like that, or was there? Did DeSantis? It was added part. Of, it, the the school system added it to their schedule of vaccines in, in order to participate. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's. Uh... We already have these programs in place. I mean, you, you you think you're saying that like you think it's like you think it's something out, outrageous. It's yeah, we've been vaccinating kids for eighty <laughs> years in the state of Florida for for them to be allowed to even participate, whether they go to uh, primary or secondary school or university level. You know, there are vaccination oh, requirements. Oh, I know. I know there's vaccination requirements. I, I, I my understanding was that the the COVID-19 vax was not mandated. So if if I got that wrong, I got it wrong. Uh, Reed once again says I would get red flagged in Florida for criticizing Israel. DeSantis would sick the IDF on me. Um, I know that's that's been a, a libertarian critique of DeSantis is his proclivity and defense of Israel. Um, would you like to step into that third rail political topic and give us your opinion there? Well, he, he's a Zionist. I mean, there's no, he's a classic Zionist. He believes in government intervention, foreign military intervention uh, in support of the, you know, military industrial complex, which, uh, which encourages the, their, the, their counterparts in Israel to do the same. You know, that, that resolves everything through military action, you know, instead of a peaceful transition and, 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 dem and democratic movements. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the, it's obvious that, you know, DeSantis is a front runner. It's obvious that that it's he's very very likely to win re-election. Um, would you be comfortable just with the hypothetical if you were to run? It seems as you are, uh, and you ended up being the differentiation vote wise between he and Nikki Freed, and we ended up with Nikki Freed as governor. Like, would you be happy to have her as governor over DeSantis? Because I think that's what a lot of people are asking themselves. I think it's. We have to remember what our founders have said, you know, about this issue. It's not really about happy or sad. You know, we're we're in a very we're in a very difficult position. 
Uh, it's like the you know so exam the 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 quote that that really is the the quote that explains this best is, is Alexander Hamilton saying if we must have an enemy at the head of government let it be one we can oppose and for whom we are not responsible. So this idea that oh the, this is the lesser of two evils argument we should support good people should support the lesser of two evils is the biggest lie in politics. Why? Because at the end of the day it harms it harms us both it, it, both spiritually and and in the sense that we don't have the moral authority anymore we sell ourselves for a modicum this this unrealistic piece uh unrealistic piece that doesn't exist it's all fantasy we ended up agreeing wholeheartedly with the media uh, media narrative and ultimately we 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 lose any like everybody who says they're going to support DeSantis now if he runs for president and puts us into world war four or whatever it is right uh, are you going to are you going to say, "Oops, my bad," or are you going to go and, uh, go up and do something? By that time, you're, you've already sold yourself out. You know yeah, who's well, going to really believe me, you? Trust me, it's too late. If we're at World War Four, we none of us are breathing after World War Three. So, um, I you know I, I don't I don't want to see DeSantis as president. I, I I think that his you know kind of neocon leanings would probably be more meaningful there. His defense of Israel, things of that nature. Um, but as governor, I just think it's like. From my vantage point, at least, it's irrefutable that he is better than Andrew Gillum and he's better than Nikki Freed. That's just my perspective, and it, and I and I Wait. know a lot of lot, a lot Wait. of libertarians feel that way. Hold on, hold on. I, a lot of libertarians feel that way strongly, and I can't blame them simply sure. because. And and as you said, maybe it's media narrative, maybe it's propaganda, right. maybe they're they're propping him up to to be the next presidential candidate on the Republican side. Um, but the fact that. It's a highly populated state with a lot of, you know, a, and it's a purple state. It's very, very marginal uh, when it comes to, you know, R versus D voters. At least it has been in recent history. Um, it took it took some courage, even if it was lip service. And, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but like there's there's there was tremendous value to having a guy who was in a highly populated coastal coastal state that was purple, and he was like, "Fuck it, I'm going to." speak out against anthony fauci i'm gonna have uh, i forget the name of his his health minister or whatever at the the state of florida level but he has been tremendous he's been outspoken against vax mandates for for kids under five he's uh, constantly questioned the efficacy safety everything else um you know things that that you just didn't see in many big coastal states yeah. and and I, I i have i have no choice but to value that to some extent and it seems as if you've written it all off uh, because he wasn't as good as we would like him to be. And I grant you, he was not as good as we would like him to be, but you don't give him any credit for that? None? Even cool. even if it was just lip service? <laughs> perspective, right? Yeah, put it in perspective. You, you know who you just described? Exactly who you just described? Trump. Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp. Oh, you know who that is? Georgia? Yeah, he's the governor of Georgia. Last state, they had like, what, a week, week and a half closing? They were the last state to actually lock down. First state to to open fully open up unconditionally. So where's his credit? Where, where were his denouncements? No, but because the media says Florida is more important because we have an agenda there. We're going to pretend that all those accomplishments are DeSantis's. Oh, wow. What a, we, we have to wake up. Uh, ultimately, if we're, if we really pride ourselves in saying that we are, we're people who want Liberty, 
not real liberty, right? That we don't want to be at the uh, we don't want to be at the whim of inflation pressures from the Fed. That we want we don't want outrageous taxation rates and and a, go from a, a low cost of living state to a very high cost of living state. That we don't we actually want a government that operates and doesn't hide. Its politicians don't hide from protest and actually do their jobs. Uh, we're having a that's the conversation I'm happy I'm happy to have here. But I'm not going to entertain a fantasy. And and let my friends continue to walk down that road when you know when the reality is is you know I keep thinking back to Judge Knapp right when he said this is uh, unpopular opinions are the ones that need to be protected the most and what I'm saying may be unpopular to a lot of people listening but it is still true you know and well, we have to I'm and if you if you support the, ultimately the, the reality is we have way more we have people more interested in happening happens uh, in things that happen in Florida for a reason. We are this kind of the swing state. We are things that matter. Uh, you know, if, if just just to play the fantasy that Gillum had won, for instance, we would have actually had a, a, a reactionary a legislature that would have limited his powers, or the governor's power, a governor Gillum powers, like they did for a secretary or a commissioner. Uh, you just said her name earlier. Uh, that's running for governor now. Um, uh, oh, Chrissy, Freed. Uh, uh, Freed. Yeah, Nikki Freed. They, the, the legislature certainly reduced her powers uh, to uh, uh, in her in her commission role, and they made sure to try and sideline her as much as possible. They would just do the same. Uh, in fact, in our system, in our, in our system of government, whether it's at the federal or the state level, legislatures have more power than than the sitting executives. They they honestly do, but they basically said no. We're 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 not going to do any of these things. We we really want to basically try and survive going to the next step in government uh, in the next position. And maybe seek higher office, um, even though we have, you know, we've passed and supported the most uh, gun confiscation policies. Not even gun control anymore. It's gun confiscation policies in this country. I mean, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Uh, whether they're personally believe in communism or simply they were bought out by communists, and but because they basically sold their souls and, and their votes, that is what we have in Florida. I mean, we we have. So this question that we are we can support the lesser of two evils in the direction I see Florida going to it's there is, there is no room for discussion at the very top of, uh, and people ask this, why don't we try and make DeSantis better? Right? Well, after two and a half years, now we're in third year. Now we're in fourth year. His elections up this year it, throughout the entire time. He hasn't listened to anybody except people who basically would empower, empower him, right? Not empower us, so he's clearly established a directory. The legislature has ignored calls for constitutional carry, for repeals of red flag laws. They've so the the their voices, people's voices, have fallen in deaf ears. And we want to still say, oh, if only we had more education, right? <laughs> if 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 only we had one more protest, yeah, they'll listen to us in the next one. No, no, the time for action is now. We have a candidate who will be there, who will be their back, who basically will take their albatross issues and remind them that that is what you've decided to put over our necks that you're carrying. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I mean, you make a good, you make a good case for yourself. I, I, I agree with you on, on much of it. I really appreciate that you're interested in correcting the record because there certainly has been a, a hagiography hey written about DeSantis, uh, you know, where they're just like ever, like if you, I, I Wait. in fact, in fact, I, I invited Tho Bishop to come on if he had time because I thought he would he would love the opportunity to counter uh, some of your positions on this, and and maybe we can do that in a future uh, episode. But uh, 
I think that there there are some people that are painting him as this you know quasi libertarian great hope and right. and while you know my vantage point like he is better certainly better than Newsom um, he is far from perfect and I think you've highlighted many of the issues that he's had and uh, as many people in the chat will get upset if I don't say it but they they strongly disagree with your your assessment of the the vaccine mandates uh, many people are saying you know my kids were in public school that's just not true i don't know man so uh, you, would you like to counter any of that cuz they they're claiming that that's just flatly false that, that, so how do you get to 90% uh, like 90 plus percent of people of populations in Miami and Brow and Palm uh, in the Miami Broward and Palm Beach areas but Duval County and and the uh, i mean we're really celebrating the fact that we're really arguing about whether or not people got vaccinated or not when the statistics are pretty clear that you had wide adoption of vaccine man, of vaccine vaccinations. And they're telling, and they want to argue about whether the parents were pressured into it because there was a rule or because which they had, ex, they had exemptions that they could have applied and didn't take, or, you know, or, or at the end of the day, this, this is just nonsense. I mean, the, people want to live in their fantasies. They're welcome to it. Right. I'd still want their votes. But the, and the reason why is because if you if you support liberty, especially in the next couple of years, you know, when when the liberty movement is really positioning itself to make a go for 2024, you know, you have to really consider, do I continue to want to support this idea of the supporting the lesser of two evils? Do I really want to support the lie that good people should vote for the lesser of two evils, that they have an obligation to do that? I, I'm, I'm here because I want to provide people an opportunity we believe if we really truly believe in free markets, we have to apply the free markets where they matter the most in, in our in our politics, in our daily politics. That's why I presented myself as a choice to let people make their uh, make make their choice. Um, I actually don't even believe I'm going to take votes away from the Sanders or Chris so much as that I'm going to allow people who would refuse to vote in the first place between the two choices or, or whoever it is in the Democrat side to to come out and have their have their vote. I mean, the the, the fact that people are talking about uh, talking about a spoiler effect in Florida, because the the typical uh, statewide candidate for a libertarian candidate does take, uh, you know, does get almost what two hundred something thousand votes, uh, and the the and DeSantis was only elected by thirty two thousand votes. So they, there is this conversation. But I also point out point out that the last time there was a a, a libertarian on the, on the ballot, it was um, Rick Scott and Charlie Crist running for governor, and Charlie Crist lost, and the Republican won that year. And you have to wonder, you know, is there really a spoiler effect or are we just take, being able to take a better stand? And there's so yeah. few people who are already involved in politics as it is, who are active voters. I mean, of all voting age adults in, in Florida, it, I would be very surprised if we saw more than 40 percent of them even vote in this upcoming election. Voting age adults. That means half of all voting age adults aren't even registered to vote. Half of them, you know, may participate to vote or may not. You know, and ultimately, if, if they have more choices, more people would be interested in it. So my goal, you know, my goal as a, as a candidate really is to get out there, at, give people that outlet, raise some money, uh, you know, do something that hasn't been done in the history of the state of Florida. Uh, I'd like to get raise one hundred fifty thousand dollars as a governor candidate, qualify for public matching funds, something that no non-Republican or Democrat has ever done. And and uh, all, of this, all of a sudden I'll, I'll be sitting sitting on a pile of cash with the will to use it. Well, the, uh, hold on. I, we got the, uh, the tweet that someone asked me to, to ask you about. 
says the number of pre this is Justin Amash that you quote tweeted said the number of pretextual traffic stops is about to go up. I don't remember which which law that was, but uh, you said Florida GOP it's continues to take the state into Jim Crow. That's very vitriolic language, good sir. Why why would you perceive it that way, and why would you say it as such? So so first and foremost, what that law was in, re in reference to is that DeSantis just signed into law a statewide ban on loud music while you're driving your vehicle. So if you're at a traffic stop and a police officer believes that your music is a little bit too incendiary or loud or uh, or simply a nuisance, you can be fined. You can be fined. If you resist, you can be arrested. The whole the whole gambit of the the prison industrial complex has been set upon upon you people. If you don't like your rap music, then you're in the wrong part of town, right? That's well, that's literally what it comes down to. Have we yeah. had these conversations before? You know, and what's the difference now? Oh, yeah, you just have you you have even more uh, special interests involved in arresting people and keeping them in jail or charging them with crimes. That's the yeah, only no, difference. I, I'm not a I'm not a fan of that law either. I just think that some people are gonna but, gonna perceive the language saying that's. Taking Good. the state into Jim they, Crow. I mean, that's they should know. They they should know the definition of what Jim Crow means, right? So Jim Crow it refers to a system of, of laws that were uh, that were put into place in Florida as well as a lot of states in the South right. post Reconstruction. So that means over 150 years ago, that essentially uh, created a two a, a second class or third class or multiple uh, you know tiered uh, caste system in the South of that there are some people who had equal rights and some people who did not. And realistically, when you say that there are some people who have the right to defend themselves and some people who don't, the red flag laws or gun confiscation laws like that, you know, that creates a that's always traditionally been a Jim Crow law in the South. That's what we just called. That's what we anybody would call them if they understood the history of the South. They were simply categorized as Jim Crow because they were designed to create a, a, a second class citizen. So if you are suddenly without due isn't, process. Isn't isn't the car being driven around playing loud music? Doesn't that apply to everybody? I mean, are, you're, are you saying that it, it's going to be disproportionately enforced always, against black people? Is that the argument? I'm, I'm a libertarian, right? I believe you're a libertarian. We yeah. libertarians believe that all laws are, are uh, can be are going to be applied unevenly. So you're, there's going to be people who basically, uh, for some people, they're going to they're going to be applied extremely unevenly, right? So no, I know. I, I agree with you. Of, of course, I'm just saying, like that particular law to say that that's Jim Crow. I mean, he's not. He's not saying if you play loud rap music, and in which case you might be like, all right, well, that sounds kind of fucking racist. Uh, he's just saying loud music. So I don't know. It just seems like a, a bit of a stretch from my vantage point. But I under, I understand the point. There, there is Florida case law. Local local governments have passed these kind of uh, kind of laws locally, and they the Florida Constitution has found them illegal. So just because we have a a statewide one now, does that make it right either? No, it doesn't. And it's always been and that in the signature of Florida Supreme Court case of, about loud music, it actually had to deal with rap music being played loud, too loud for people. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so I think that you, you actually brought up 2024 and, uh, you know, an LP run for president in, in your defense of wanting to run now, because we're trying to let people know, you know, Hey, right. there are third options and you should be seriously considering them. I think a lot of, a lot of libertarians, especially the more conservative leaning ones, the ones that have some affinity for DeSantis would say you are jeopardizing our future with this decision. Uh, because you're going to have so many people that love DeSantis, and there's a lot of people that love DeSantis, that if if just just running alone, they're going to say, well, the libertarians don't, they don't actually care about real world liberty because from their worldview, 
DeSantis was better on the COVID hysteria than the vast majority of governors. That's their vantage point. I, we've already gone over why you believe that to be false. But what what do you say to the the bigger picture that this is detrimental to the movement because of the perceptions of his supporters? Well, I say it the same way that because of lessons learned from Trump. For everybody who supported Trump instead of Joe Jorgensen, you know, what do you have now, right? You you don't have the, you don't, first of all, you, you, you're not li- supporting the liberty movement in those, in, in those terms. You're simply uh, supporting, you know, what we're kind of tired of, which That's is- a tough one to bring up, brother, because a lot hey, of people would it, say, a lot of people would say that the reason, the reason that, uh, you know, Biden's president and the economy is collapsing and everything else is because- they, they hey, voted for Joe and, and then Biden got in. I mean, that's a tough I one wouldn't, to sell to people. I wouldn't, I will tell you, I, no, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, the Trump lost the election, right? Let's be, let's be he lost the election. And, and whether you believe the, cons, the conspiracies that it was a, a, a stolen election or not, everyone knew that race had the, had a, the structure of the race had totally changed because of mail-in ballots. That universal mail-in balloting opened the race to all sorts of shenanigans, and and those were well known. Uh, so, but his team, I mean, but you have to understand, universal mail-in ballots were it were introduced into that 2020 election by mostly Republican legislatures, 90% of Republican legislatures, except Florida, where Trump won by three points. What does that tell you? Mm-hmm. But because there was basically a a, a, a fever at, and a, so much money poured into these elections locally to change the rules. Uh, that you know, obviously, they got outmaneuvered in the in Trump world, and we have the result we have. That that's just cons- concise uh, political science explanation. But on in how we deal with movements, political movements, you need you need cohesion in order to move forward. You need to be able you be able to rally your vote, rally your resources, and and even if you don't even if you don't win the election, it still proves the point that you can do that. It's like to say if we are the three percent. Uh, 3% of voter registrations in Florida, then you'd ba- damn well be sure that we must have all 3% because you can't fracture your own base. Well, you must, see that, uh, you must move of, forward. People, you're bringing up cohesion and fracturing your base. A lot of people would say that you are fracturing our base by choosing to do this. You know that, right? I mean, that's what a lot of people would say. Well, they, I, I guarantee you, the people who are saying that weren't part of our 3% to begin with, they're not registered libertarians. They're not, uh, they've never given, they've probably never given to a libertarian cause. And if they have, it's peanuts. Uh, you know, you know. Uh, I know people who have been arguing on this chat that, you know, they do this for a living as opposed to actually as a, as a movement. So mm-hmm. that's, those are, those are, give me a persuadable argument from someone who actually has credibility, you know, not someone who's going, who's chasing after the next Trump or the next DeSantis or the, or, or the next strong man. And rather than, you know, our vision of, of a free world, you know, yeah. we've got, listen, we've gone so far beyond from a vision of, of America being a shining city on a hill or, or really a, of the magnet for freedom. That is the example for other nations to buy, to follow. We've gone so far from that to, Oh, it's the next strong man. Now it's like, well, we, you know, at this point, you know, what we're having a completely different uh, conversation. Then, because you're not bought into what I'm trying to sell, and you really don't want me to sell it, I, uh, I totally understand that, and I'm going to keep selling it. You know, there is a market for this. You know, and it's oh, I, it's very I'm not clear. saying there's no market, brother. I, I, I obviously there's a market for it, uh, but it's just it's just a matter of like, is this detrimental to our cause longer term? If you can't win, which we probably assume you can't, so then, then the value the value has to be in. What liberty do we actually get 
from you doing this. And and from Perfect. my vantage point, from my vantage point is the only the only liberty that we can achieve is if you by running or not, whichever whichever way you can best leverage your supporters is to get DeSantis to cave to give us what we demand when it comes to getting rid of red flag laws or or whatever whatever your list of things let, are that you can actually let me say realistically attain let, let me get there first and foremost i need to uh shout out to uh, fu mantis who says citing jorgensen is a tone deaf as you know a right re- as a registered donating libertarian and i actually agree with that uh, that was a I take that back. It was a bad example. Okay, <laughs> I am I am a city member of the Mises Caucus. I'm actually a state organizer in the state of Florida. Uh, I firmly believe that you know we we do have like the the Mises Caucus believes right that and I don't speaking I'm not speaking for them. I'm speaking to what broadly they say about uh, commu- com- our communication style. Right, mm-hmm. we need to have people who will sp- simply speak truth to power. The emperor has no clothes. Right, that that at the very least that we provide a voice where there is no voice in, in that void and have people simply follow us, follow us. I, I, mean, I don't think anyone would disagree that you should be speaking at the truth very to power. least that at, at the very least, that is what my campaign is for. And people are reacting to it very appropriately because why they have a lot of sandcastles that, that they have built up in their minds and come the next election, they're going to walk, they're going to see the, the wave of truth just literally and not, not from me, but from reality checks come in and, and, and really knock them on their ass. Well, I don't think anyone's going to argue that you shouldn't be speaking out against DeSantis where he's wrong. And you've listed a few areas where I agree. He is dead ass wrong. I just think that the the argument is, is there value in a political campaign and using those resources to go against a guy that you can't win or that you can't beat rather. And then and then and then alienating so many people that otherwise agree with libertarians on the red flag laws and the vaccine mandates and everything else that we we've already mentioned. Absolutely. Like, like does, so, does it lose us more than it gains us is the real question. I, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it a, a little di- respond a little differently. Knowing everything I've said, knowing that Florida's passed red flag laws, that, that were the fat, the basis for the national red flag laws that just passed that Biden just signed into law that, uh, that our taxing taxes are growing, going up insanely, uh, insanely high. While the while, with no justification because Florida sits on a twenty six billion dollar res, reserve a fund reserve, uh, you know, and ultimately we have this issue of of the of of uh, this the First Amendment rights. Where are are not simply are we talking about a governor that is, uh, I, frankly, the First Amendment issues or free expression issues, uh, it, those laws that are passed aren't even the the most problematic to me. Simply put, that you have someone that's. Uh, that is a sitting governor that people look to and as a model for what a libertarian is, is the most dangerous conversation that I would need to confront as a, as a libertarian running for the seat, because it's, it's, this is that media narrative is trying to again, read, redefine what a libertarian is, right? If we can't even have, if we can't even have this, this conversation about what are libertarian solutions for our modern world, you know, uh, in terms of the decentralization arguments, uh, and even in terms of just, frankly, even minarchism, right? The, these things aren't aren't even out there. Uh, that you know, there are some there are some states doing a lot better than Florida in regards to how they're handling education, parental rights, uh, how they're handling you know, like I said, property rights, and and, and certainly home value, uh, home uh, home ownership issues, right? Mm-hmm. So 
but and but if we don't tackle them, if we don't confront them, if we're not a voice, if there's no voice out there, then who is it going to be when they say, "Oh, uh, we should have said, we should have said something back when, back when we had the opportunity to." Uh, and frankly, we need that voice in a 2022 election. And I'm fully expecting DeSantis to go run for president in 2024. There will be a special election to replace him in 2024. I consider myself uh, already in that race, too, because we, we we need to be consistent about our our, uh, our perspective for what is really ha- going to happen in the next months, year or two years. Right. Yeah. This is really this is really good what it comes down to. What are we expecting from the economy? You, the people who tune into you every day, know the the pronouncements and prognostications that come from the economic wizardry, right? That you know we are facing a, a, an inflation crisis. We are facing a uh, obviously uh, a, a cost in terms of the sunk costs of, of, of living for from energy costs to uh, to home Everything. to home building and, and every sector essentially of, of average consumers. What that's going to have ramifications for the future. We should be at the tip of that, the tip of tip of that, knowing that when it comes, we will be present and we will have the moral authority to speak on it on a political basis, not just sit there like Peter Schiff has, has for years saying it's coming, it's coming to an end, it's coming to an end. Uh, but really, be out there in, in, in a policy way because the only way to actually have a seat at the table politically wise, you got to play, you got to be involved, you got to do something. And I feel like Larry Sharp right now saying it like this and use my hands. I mean, a lot of people would argue, though, that if you want if you want to make real change, you have to get elected. And and I think a lot of people would say, well, you're a good candidate, Hector. Why not go for something you can actually win? And and I think that that's a fair critique. Like, I, I would love to see you actually in the state yeah. legislature, uh, something like that, where you could actually be changing the laws here to a more liberty minded uh, worldview, as opposed to what I perceive just knowing uh, so many of the people that follow me and listen to me, they love DeSantis. And and if we challenge DeSantis, they're going to perceive us as being, I don't know, at, at a minimum ungrateful. And I know that's, that's not your perception, but that's how they're going sure. to, to see it. And I can't blame them, you know, if, the, because, because of their perception of, of what he did during the lockdown period, they're going to say to themselves, well, look at these fucking libertarians. They're not serious about Liberty at all. Like you have a governor who, who was good on the lockdowns and now look at them. And and I know your critique is he wasn't actually good on lockdowns. And, and I right. think it's important that, that we educate people on, on where he, uh, you know, fell short. I, I completely agree with you on that. It's just that why not, why not focus as good as you are? Why not focus on something that you could actually get elected? Good question. So here's, here's a simple answer. As libertarianism as a movement, the Liberty movement itself uh, is limited in its ability to to change things, even if I was elected to one of these roles. So we also have to come to grips with the, the notion of political power. What people are saying when people say ask that kind of question, uh, they don't. There, it's a from a misunderstanding of what political power looks like. The strongest form of political power is not the ones that wield the pen, but the ones that wield that wield the the uh, the bullhorn. It, it all it's always been that way. You know, you move the people, you know, uh, to quote a movie, you know, you, you win the you win the people, you win your freedom. And that's uh, that's always been the case because kings and emperors will always bow down to public pressure. But if you try to play the game their way, they will always beat you. And until we have won the people and, and this is, you know, from the Mises Cox perspective, this is what we talk about in terms of a cultural revolution until you win the culture. So you win that culture battle. You know, you're not going to be able to affect any lasting uh, policy change either. So I, 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 I got, I got, 
I got to jump on that because so many people would say sure. that that DeSantis has been the you know the head of the spear when it comes to fighting the culture war, and he's done it in a way you know a, sure. a few times where I disagreed and a few times where I agreed. Um, you know that 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 does have value. Like he's got the biggest bullhorn next to Trump, and the guy is out there. You know, so, talking all right. about how's he using it? How, how's he using yeah. it? Tell me. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly. He he's he's speaking out vocally. Uh, this is you're talking bullhorn. So we we are right. setting aside sure. any of his actual policies. He's speaking out against vaccine mandates. He's speaking out against vaccinating of kids. He's speaking out against lockdowns. He's speaking out against uh, what? No, he's not. He has spoken out. I've I've listened. I've watched. All right. The so, what, so we still have. So we still have mandatory vaccinations for kids in in schools right now. I know. We but still you're, have... going, you're going back to what he, what he's actually doing. I'm saying you you're bringing a bullhorn. I'm talking strictly right. what he's talked about. So we got. And I'm ta- I'm telling you, you may be hearing you may be hearing something that that's out there, uh, but it's not mirroring what's reality here. Right. Like oh, that, that's we're... fair. That's fair. But it's a separate argument. You were you were saying that the bullhorn matters. And I'm saying his bullhorn has been good. It has been good for us because he's talked about the the transitioning of children. He's talked about uh, all, all the things that I, I just listed. I mean, that has been a, a very valuable thing from the from the conservative and from some of the libertarian perspective when it comes to pushing back against the, this kind of monolithic, uh, you know, neo progressive agenda. And and I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't appreciate it. And as you said, it's just lip service, but the bullhorn matters. So right, it, it's it's. Listen, I don't see any difference between left wing wokeism and right wing wokeism. And Ron DeSantis, you're absolutely right, represents a loud bullhorn for right wing wokeism. Okay. And right wing wokeism today yeah. today means gun confiscation, tax increases, and your loss of privacy rights. You know the the rea- That's those are all those things combined. In, in fact, and reality speaking, just like the left wing woke, wokeism. Uh, politicians, they don't want to do their jobs as elected officials either, even though they have these responsibilities to to uh, keep a, you know, to maintain a regulatory environment that at least people can live in. Not what we have today in Florida, which obviously with property insurance, even car insurance rates uh, skyrocketing the way they are, they're simply adding more fire into an already uh, blazing fire caused by inflation. You know, we should be talking instead as a libertarian candidate for governor. We should be talking more about why doesn't the state of Florida already implement a Bitcoin standard and start charging uh, charging people who want to use the Florida system in uh, premiums for using U.S. dollars. Let's let's really have the conversation about what decentralization looks like. Not hey, let's 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 uh, compete with the left with our own wokeism bullshit. Well, and that's that's I, where that's where we really should be. I think I think you're going to struggle with the decentralization argument because. He he essentially and granted yes the, his declaration of emergency enabled the the local municipalities to roll out some things that we strongly oppose. However, that is an example to some extent of decentralization. It's allowing Miami to do woke bullshit and lockdowns and vaccine mandates and mask mandates and things like that. Um, but I you know I oppose it strongly. So it's right. I, I'm t- it's tough. Anyways, uh, right. we got two two super chats real quick. Uh, sure. Shannon says you you critique libertarians. When do Republicans ever cheer on and support libertarians? Libertarians are supposed to support Republicans. No give and take. Uh, yeah, I mean for the most part they don't support us, but we do have some libertarians that are Republicans, and those are fucking legends. You know, those are really uh, Thomas Massey is probably my favorite example. Uh, I, I I agree with you. Like I, I'm not. Let, we're, let we're, we, get, we 
we have nothing to listen. We're only talking about two examples. If you talk to Yal, they, they talk about they have like another 200 people elected to office that are smaller libertarians. Yeah, the the yeah. reality, there's 10,000 elected positions in America. Right. You know, the, so we are uh, we are really at the not talking dollars, you know, apples to oranges conversation. We have nothing to lose to, resi to resisting and telling the people take back your rights, right? That these people are harmed, have no interest in supporting your quality of life, the or your future, or the future of your fam family and children. That's what it really comes down to. There, you know, the things that we're we're really arguing about is are, are things that happened two years ago with with DeSantis. On top of that, they're not what's on top of us right now, which is the impending uh, crushing inflation, which is cause you know affecting food prices. Gas, gas prices. I mean, we're we're so far beyond. We should be so far beyond this and talking about solutions right now. That that to start to really give people uh, more attention on why DeSantis should be supported instead and or be considered as a friend of liberty uh, is a lot. You know, it's a conversation I had maybe a year ago, but today he is open. It's open season. Why? Because he's simply going to repeat the same th things that the left has done. For years and just spin it with a right wing flair. That, that's well, all it is. I, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any libertarian. Certainly not myself that would say we shouldn't be critiquing DeSantis. I think that we ought to be. It's whether or not we should be running because of public perception when it comes to what what that what that actually achieves us. And and here's a good uh, question. It says DeSantis is not that useful to us uh, now that the COVID regime is over. Telling him that LP won't challenge him if he banned no knock raids, et cetera, is okay. See, this has been my perspective. And I actually, I'm stealing this idea from Kurt the Libertarian who wrote this manifesto like a year and a half ago. Maybe I shouldn't call it a manifesto. He might get put on a watch list, but uh, his argument- He's already was, there, we, we, along with you and me. Yeah, of course. Uh, but his argument was that that the LP should be focusing on being a spoiler, but right before the spoil happens, we should be horse trading and negotiating uh, you know, dropping out, throwing our support behind whichever one is better. I'm not saying Republican or Democrat, it just has like recent history. It's been Republicans that have been better, at least when it comes to, uh, you know, what they say and not, not necessarily what they do. Uh, <clears throat> what do you say to that? What do you say to horse trading? Right. And if you were to if, say you were polling at 2% and it was a razor thin race and they, and DeSantis's people come to you and they say, Hey, we will ban, we will ban the red flag, you know, laws. Uh, like, what what do you say to that? I'm very confident that they won't do that. But let's say let's let's give a quick explanation as to why people like Kurt feel the way, that way. Because I've heard it too. I've, I've heck, I've even felt I've even heard Dave Smith say it. Right. So the reality the the reality is that we have no seat at the table right now. They can ignore us, and they have ignored us, and will con can continue to ignore us unless they feel some pain at uh, some pain. And the if if my campaign is even marginally as uh, successful, I mean margins, right? Uh, they they still don't have a reason to to do anything with me because they it's uh, until the polling comes out until election day polling and sees how voters act, they have nothing to really trust that I, I'm going to make that much of an impact. And reality is that I'm the only one in Florida that can even make this argument. Everybody else, uh, honestly, no matter how well, uh, well intentioned or well studied their opinions are, cannot refute the fact that if they make that kind of deal for me, it, it's actually that I'm the only reason that they would do that is because I'm an actual threat, and that I could. Oh, do I grant you that. More, I grant you that. But right? but that's not that's not an answer to the question. Would you do that? 
No. And I'll, t- okay. I'll explain why. Tell we, we've me been why. Here, we, we were here eight years ago. So eight years ago, there was a candidate for governor in Florida. Uh, he, his name was Adrian Wiley. Uh, not to be confused with some other uh, some, uh, a gentleman, a friend of mine whose uh, last name is Willie. But the the, the point is, is that uh, eight years ago, he uh, he scored well above over the, the 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 spread right between the Democrat and, and Republican, and every Republican for the next four years kept calling themselves a libertarian and kept put you know you know what happened we 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 basically got uh, we mo- the Republicans turned libertarian all of a sudden. You know, they've started saying, "Oh, we're gonna uh, you know turn back the clock on red light cameras on taxes." We're actually going to be very. We're actually going to, for once, be fiscal conservatives. Where I already told you, they're already they have a history of raising taxes, uh, and for the most part, they gave a lot more lip service to our brand. But they don't even do that much. That's that's as far as they will actually go historically, uh, when there is that pressure on them to do so. Okay. Within so that your same argument time, is that you can't you can't trust them if they were to offer it right. to you. You don't accept right. because you don't think they're going to do it. Right within that same time frame, though, you know what ha- what happened? We passed. We had. Uh, medical marijuana legalization here in the state of Florida. Uh, we've had uh, we've had a an effort to decriminalize to basically give felons uh, felon rights back. Uh, you know, so we've actually had those kind of movements across the entire state that were supported and buoyed, honestly, by by a libertarian being on the ballot and and making this choice. Florida has very uh, a uh, has a closed primary system. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that idea. Closed primaries. Where you have to you you have to be you're stuck with the ballot that you're registered uh you re- with your registered party as yeah so yeah, and, and you California can't change you, you can't you can't change so but I guarantee you there are a lot of people who would give a libertarian a second look if it wasn't for that kind of uh, uh, that kind of resistance to uh, to the ability of voters to participate in, in in that manner so in other words you know there we do punch way above our own weight in terms of uh, voter uh, in terms of a voter registration we routinely have done that and there are a lot more people who would be sympathetic to us and even learn and even join us if they thought that they finally thought hey you know it's not going to get any worse than democrats and republicans and what they've been doing they're basically the same thing together for all, for a decade uh and we're going to give libertarians a shot but we don't even have that conversation unless there's a libertarian on the ballot so mm-hmm. at this point people telling me that we have nothing to gain you know uh, from this is uh, we're, if we, that's it, it's really idiotic, but the, to tell you the truth, on the other side, it's we're, we also have nothing to lose because again, we don't have a seat at the table. Historically speaking, they've never given us a seat at the table, even when we've had the uh, even when we've run statewide candidates. And this year, I'm not even the only statewide candidate. You know, we have Dennis Misigoy running for U.S. Senate against Marco Rubio, who is basically the the neocon in chief, the inheritor of the tradition of neoconservatism. Uh, and, and who sits on every other foreign affairs board you can you can you can talk about, yeah, uh, and nobody and it. people are people are outraged about me running against DeSantis uh, more so than they want to talk about Dennis Misigoy running against Marco Rubio. Well, but th- there's a reason for that. It's because I think everyone agrees that fucking Rubio sucks ass. He's awful. He's evil. DeSantis, there's a difference of opinion amongst even libertarians. And I think that's the reason that you're getting more pushback is simply because no libertarians like Rubio. Uh, some libertarians like DeSantis. That's the whole reason, man. I don't think it's anything personal so, towards you. Right. Let me tell you, uh, let me share something in terms of the impact you can see from a libertarian being on the ballot now. The same week I filed is the same week the Senate took up the first vote on, on the red flag law bills, on the national red flag law. Do you right. know who voted against it in Florida? But Rubio. Yeah, he wrote it against it. You know who else voted against it? 
I don't. Rick Scott. Rick Scott. Okay. You know who Rick Scott was? I do. Was, I recognize the name. I think was he the he, he was the Go former ahead. governor. He was the former yeah, governor of the right. state of Florida who yeah. signed the Florida red flag law bill into and he voted against it at the national level. Why do you think he did that? Be, you know, you tell me. He, he doesn't. He obviously does, he sees the writing on the wall from from angry uh, gun activists in the state of Florida, sports uh, sportsmen and libertarians, and so does and so does Rubio, and he knows these margins very clear. I, I'm going to say something that if if you haven't heard this yet, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know how I didn't get this out earlier. DeSantis is tone deaf. He's absolutely tone deaf to any pressure whatsoever. So when you ask me about you know what ha- what if he makes a deal of this his his entire operation is 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 simply directed at an, at the exercise of power and not deal making they they that is flatly what's been shown to be the tr- the, the case there's no nuanced positions there's no deal making well, in fa- in fairness i think in this highly polarized political environment the the willingness to not deal make is actually how you deal make uh and I think that's that was Trump's lesson is like you if you come out and you're brash and you're not fucking you're not conceding anything to, to anybody, that's what gets your base fired up. And that's basically the only way Republicans have been winning of late. So I, I'm not so sure that he is he is actually that guy as much as that's his mold that he's walking in right now. The, the reason I think that it would be at least worth considering. Uh, with your critiques aside of not being able to trust him to do as we would demand uh, when it comes to like getting rid of red, red flag laws is that that is to me, you know, if you were to able, if you were able to actually pull that off and, and to do it in a way that was public, not, not behind closed doors, but say, Hey, we are, we are deciding because of DeSantis's promise to us that he is going to abolish red flag laws in the state of Florida I am I am now stepping down and I am endorsing his campaign as a libertarian because I want more liberty for the people of Florida. That makes you a hero, you know, and if he doesn't do it, it makes him a fucking villain. Like that's that's the type of political pressure and outsized, uh, you know, swing that we could have versus our, our actual sure. voting. If, base. if people if people really I mean, if you're if you're going there in, t- in terms of that, that sort of deal making. If that man had promised, like he did, like you said, I'm talking about the, Ron DeSantis, puts constitutional carry and a re, the repeal of red flag laws on in a special session before the election, and and makes that happen with with the legislature, what what do we have to lose? You know, we've already proven the point. You can't take back uh, the, you can't take back these laws. But again, I say that knowing that he has, and I would I would genuinely consider that if that was actually on the table very okay. publicly. Fair. But the reality is that he's been on a he has had a, been on the position of supporting red flag laws and gun confiscation since at least 2019 before, you know, before uh, the, the, he became no, just as he's already become governor at that point, that point, too. So but people have chased him around the state for years at this point, asking for constitutional carry. And it, he, he continues to double down on supporting of gun control and, and, and these measures rather than going the rather than going toward. Self-defense freedom. This is a good question for you. Then why, why is he doing that? Is it because is it is it your belief that it's because he is the chosen, you know, uh, Republican Trojan horse to be lifted up, and that's he's he's not going to do anything that actually, uh, uh, you know, offends his his true backers. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's you know, it's, that's fair. people. People. You know, there's a lot of there's a there's there is a science to Republican. Uh, uh, elected leadership, 
essentially making uh, siding with leftists, left 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 leaning uh, policy ideas, and the groups that are behind them, in order to weaken the weaken the his opposition from who would otherwise be supported by those same groups. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to veer off too too far from the the right wing lane in order to get in order to do that. A lot of Republicans do that, you know, right. and 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 they're despised for it. But you know what? Yeah. Some of them get away with it, uh, uh, and they do it hidden, uh, you know, hiddenly. Some of them do it openly with while you know filling out questionnaires and and making public declarations of support and, and with their votes, you know. But you know what? They do so not because they believe that that Republicans will reject them on that issue. No, they believe it because they. Uh, the, the Democrats will accept them because of those issues. That's the mm. big dichotomy between Republican voters and, and Democrat yeah. voters. No, I, so, I agree with you there. Uh, and, and frankly, some libertarians. Ben, ben says Hector definitely puts the pain in campaign. Uh, just jokes, I'm sure. Anyways, I, I hope this, this feels it. I honestly do. because <laughs> That's that's what we need. We, we need, I, we I need agree a, with you a there. governor. I agree yeah, with we you. We need like, our elected like, leaders to feel we, the pressure. I totally agree with you, dude. Like we need to... We need to pressure these people to be better. Like, there's no doubt about it. The the entire critique from my vantage point, other people can have different critiques, but uh, is is this the best way to pressure him? And I think I think there's a fair argument that it might be, yeah. but I think there's also uh, a counter argument that goes along with that. That goes: Are we failing to galvanize our movement? Are we doing more harm than good? Uh, and when it comes to libertarians and getting more people that that are conservative leaning. Uh, or, or even on the left that opposed the lockdowns sure. that, that would otherwise be voting libertarian and saying, well, fuck, this Nikki Freed chick is running on, sure. you know, he, I, he, I he was death Santis and all this stuff. And it's like it, it even from her campaign, yes, exactly. It, it, it portrays him as this hero of liberty and anti-lockdownism. So sure. perception wise, you're going to have a major uphill battle. Well, here, let, let, let's let's tell us some truth here. You know, I came into this movement because uh, I. I fell in love with liberty through the Ron Paul campaigns in twenty in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve. That was an uphill battle too. And you know what? Every a lot of the ideas that that he pursued in his presidential campaigns have have largely been popularized and become the dominant ideas in our time. You do not uh, make you do not make the change that you want to see by sitting simply sitting on the sidelines and wondering when the change is going to happen. Eventually, you have to assume the responsibility for yourself. You know, who am I? I'm a, I'm a political, you know, I'm a political guy. I'm one of these guys who's helped out people for running for office for for a decade. And this is the first time I run for office because I think this is the most important race in our lifetime right now. And I, you know, this is this is it. Why? Because you have you have someone who clearly is a, is a trying to co-opt the libertarian brand, the the ideas of liberty, and that with just simple lip service and no, and in fact. No track record, no voting history, no legislation to support such a notion, except a the the loudness of the you know mainstream media outlets continually promote and repeat the same lie over and over and over again. You know, I'm going to hold. We need to have a conversation about what liberty really looks like in Florida. And as as a libertarian candidate for governor in Florida, I intend to have that conversation. That's a great way to end it. Uh, go ahead and tell people where they can follow your campaign, man. Sure. I'm uh, Roos for Florida, R-O-O-S there for Florida.com uh, and on the socials, all nice and uh, together there. And, you know, your your help will go a long way, each of you. Uh, it's not, you know, I'm not asking for a lot. Uh, I think um, 
people have to realize that we need a voice. If you if you are in the state of Florida and you want to see me out there, I'm I'm pressing the flesh and I'm traveling around the state uh, and I'm active actively raising money. Nice. Well, uh, oh, what was your website again? Uh, Roostforflorida.com. That's right. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, man. I you know I'm not sure I've changed my perspective. I, I think it's still it's still questionable from, from my vantage point. Like I, I just, I just don't know. I just don't know. And uh, I, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to do some more homework on, on what his policies were when it comes to lockdowns and whether or not he actually, if he just enabled it because of the declaration of emergency, which he should have gotten rid of. And I agree with you, that was bad. Or was he actually, uh, you know, implementing these things? What, what was he saying vocally? It's a lot, it's a lot worse. And I, I, it's a lot worse, and it's uh, I, you know, there's some things I, I I haven't been able to share with everybody, but the reality is that he, at the at the very least, he he was at the he was the signature writer for over a hundred billion dollars in 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 basic COVID bucks uh, mm-hmm. for programs and un un, uh, un non-competitive bids that went out throughout the entire state of Florida, in, enriching people who who didn't even live in Florida for the most part uh, through the uh, vaccination program, staffing issues, and and whatnot. I mean, but that's, it's a longer conversation with a lot more details and a lot more moving parts. Uh, well, at the I'm end of the sure, day, I'm sure you'll the end be of able day, to cover these things because uh, sure. you, you'll do a whole circuit of interviews. So. Ron DeSantis himself, though, I, I firmly believe because he's so out of touch and his team is so out of touch as a result. And they're so focused on the media narrative pursuing that, 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 that they will have ignored the people's needs so much that the outcry will sink his campaign by itself. I, I won't have to do that much. I just think he's such an incompetent governor that ultimately the people will respond because what are the, what what do they have to lose uh, when they're dealing with an economic recession that's part part made worse by state policies? Wait, so you think change. you think that DeSantis is going to lose? I think he it's I think he will lose because of his lack because he's basically an ineffectual governor. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I because he's, I mean, I'm sure you see, you the, see the numbers. You, yeah, you, uh, politicians, sitting politicians running for a re-election in the middle of a recession. You know, when when he can't carry, yeah, that, when he can't make a case for himself uh, of what he's done for what he's done in reaction to it. I mean, that's a case. That's a that's a perfect scenario for him to lose. Well, I mean, a lot of people with tight say, margins, tight uh, well, margins, buddy. But but the the I mean, the polling right now has him up by ten points against Freed. So they haven't they haven't polled in, they haven't polled since February. Oh, okay. So, well, no, so I agree they, with they you. Have, if, if there's a recession, campaign, yeah. yeah, neither campaigns, none of these campaigns have put out any more polling uh, yeah. because okay. they they just don't they're not trustworthy. Anything's older than six months before an election, not trustworthy at all. No, no, I agree with you on that. But um, I, I mean, I think that if there's a recession, obviously it'll it'll hurt his chances. There's no doubt about that. Um, I'm just not I'm just not sure that that he is. I, I just think that he's he's a very uh, you know he's got. The media is going to give him a lot of airtime, and I think that the 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 people of Florida, because comparatively they feel as if their economy is doing better and everything else, versus many of the other states that had very harsh lockdowns, that's their perception at least that they're probably going to lend them their support. But we'll see. Let, let me end on this note: it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> it usually is. It usually is. This is going to be an interesting uh, test because w- when is the election? Is it a year from now? No- November eighth, right? In this oh, November eighth. Oh, it's this November. Wow. Okay. I thought it, I thought it was yeah. a little bit further off. My bad. Um, so yeah, if that's the case, I, I think that could be right when the recession's biting. Who knows? The I, hardest. I cert- yeah. yeah. No, I, I certainly don't think that, uh, 
I would be casting a vote for Nikki Freed, regardless of how bad the economy is going. Uh, but it would certainly help your chances. So we'll see what happens, man. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And and as just for those that are listening and watching, uh, I am actually friends with Hector, and and I really appreciate that he was right. willing to to take the hard questioning. And uh, you know, I I think that we have a, a sincere. Uh, different vantage point on this, but I, I think that you did a good job of explaining your perce perception. I appreciate it, Clint, and I hope uh, I hope I represent the, the the liberty movement well as a candidate. We'll see, man. It's going to be interesting. Uh, all right, if anybody would like to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Thank you guys so much. We're out. <music>